Monday. Monday, Monday, Monday. Monday. <laughs> this week we have Corbin Clay on the podcast. He is a country the... singer. <laughs> He's not a country singer. Oh. Um, he started a furniture company called Azure. Uh, and if you guys aren't familiar with it, uh, it basically solved a beetle kill pine issue that Colorado was facing and turned it into Scandinavian contemporary furniture. He let the Beatles loose. He let the Beatles loose. It's true. But the more interesting story is how he grew that company from a side gig in a garage to a company that he was able at one point valued at zero dollars and was able to course correct that in four years and sell the company and retire at the age of 38 years old. And he walks us through exactly how he did that. It's I'm thinking like right now, if in four years <clears throat> I could sell and retire, it seems like a quick amount of time. He turned things around quickly. This Good is for time. him. This is, yeah, this is the time. The time is now. With that being said, I wouldn't retire. You'd find something to do. I would not sign anything that made sure I couldn't compete in the same market. <laughs> that that that's accurate. All right, let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by Duration Molding and Millwork. Love the durability of PVC moldings, but frustrated by the constant movement of PVC with changes in temperature? The answer is Duration Molding, Millwork, and Siding. Duration is durable like PVC, but miter and butt joints stay tight so that your craftsmanship endures. No need to worry about the darkness of paint color or utilizing special paints either. Bottom line, Duration is easy to work with, installs and finishes quickly, and looks just like wood. And to learn more about Duration Polyash products, please visit their website at durationmillwork.com. Well, Corbin, appreciate you being on, man. I know you and I have uh, exchanged emails a few times, and I've helped, I've restrained myself from asking too many questions because I know all of it is what we're going to be talking about today. But <laughs> before we get into it, introduce yourself, who you are, you know, what you started, things like that. Sure. My name is Corbin Clay. And in 2009, I started the Azure Furniture Company here in Denver. Um, we have uh, 4 million acres of dead pine trees here in the Rocky Mountains due to this beetle infestation. And, you know, Entrepreneurialism 101, if there is a big demand for something and a product or service doesn't yet exist for that demand, if you can create one of those two things, you'll probably do pretty good. So I was running, my background's kitchen and bath. Um, I did my apprenticeship at a, at a custom kitchen shop, um, custom, custom kitchen cabinet shop. That's an alliterative sentence, huh? <laughs> and uh, I was running a kitchen and bath shop in Boulder, actually, at the time. And we had a bunch of customers asking us, you know, why don't you guys use Beetle Kill? And I didn't have a good answer for him. You know, I, I thought for sure that it would warp or, you know, remember the, uh, what was it? The wormy maple you'd have, you know, larvae hatching. They do the floors out of it and you'd have a worm crawling out years later. Cause it and KD it properly or who knows what, right? Like there's gotta be something wrong. You with pay extra for because, that. Hey right. man. It's like tequila. Yeah. You get the worm. Now, can, can you claim them as dependents? <laughs> <laughs> this see, this was part of our marketing strategy. When the beetles crawl out, which they inevitably will, 
you can claim five to seven million dependents now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so so we did that. I worked with the um, forestry department at Colorado State University. Um, and we had another big outbreak in the 80s. Um, you know, same, same exact bug, same exact lodgepole and ponderosa pine trees. And they said, nope, absolutely nothing wrong with it. it. It changes the wood into a blue color. Hence the name of the company, Azor. That's Latin for blue. Um, and then, yeah, just realized that uh, it got way bigger than I ever planned on it getting. I mean, by the end, we were furnishing, you know, 100 plus key hotels, um, full office buildings. You know, at one point we had two full production shifts. You know, I'm, I'm looking into recruiting a COO to hand over the reins and just like, I'm a woodworker. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty good storyteller and I'm a, I'm a product, you know, woodworker. And this has gotten way out of hand. So like, it's time to bring in a proper executive to run the company. So before uh, before you got there, you're going back to being in the, the, the kitchen shop, the custom kitchen cabinet shop you that question came up when you were working there right when hey why don't you guys use beetle kill yeah so i knew nothing about it i'm from ohio and i did my training in florida so when i came out and honestly boulder's so gorgeous i hadn't gone much further west you know boulder's maybe 50 60 miles east of the continental divide out here and at the divide is where it's really bad and just west of the divide when you get closer to like breckenridge granby area and I had no idea. So it's actually a funny story. Uh, we were doing this kitchen, doing an install. And I looked up and the ceiling was all TNG pine, but it had all these blue streaks in it. And I asked the contractor, the GC on the project, I was like, what is with this wood? Like, is it a finish you put on or something? And he goes, oh, no, that, that's called beetle kill pine. You got to put a treatment on it so the beetles don't eat your ceiling. He's totally wrong. That's not, that has nothing to do with it whatsoever. <laughs> But I just come from Florida. So, right. you know, there's lots of termites. So I went back and talked to my boss. I was like, what is, what is the deal with these ceiling eating beetles? And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so that's where it all came from. Um, and then, yeah, I was in a position to where that company uh, actually closed. I picked up a second job um, uh, for about the full year before, and I'd saved up a little money. And then back to that entrepreneurialism 101, if you can, fill a demand you know with something that doesn't exist yet you'll probably do all right and that's that's exactly what we did well what specifically was that demand was it the use of the lumber or was it a particular piece of furniture no it was it was why is nobody doing anything with this wood why why aren't we making toothpicks out of it paper pencils furniture obviously why isn't there some rule that says 30 percent of all new construction should should be you know of, of what would, beetle what kill pine the, and what was the reason when people, when, when people would ask, why weren't people using it? I think, honestly, it's a lot of just kind of laziness and apathy in the, uh, in the industry, unfortunately. I mean, you guys know how hard it is to change a process or a procedure. You know, who uses softwood anymore in furniture, especially in America? You know, um, Colorado's milling industry is completely gone. So we never once used KD. It was all air dried, but got to use KD. Can't do it. It's like, well, 9% moisture is 9% moisture, you know, on a macro level, it doesn't necessarily matter how you get to that 9%. You know, it's just, we're used to stuffing it into a kiln for two weeks and, and microwaving it. Right. Um, but we don't have that out here anymore. 
so I think it was just a lot of uh, a lot of stigma around it. You know, oh, it's going to warp. Pine sucks. No one wants pine. That's just, this is when walnut is going crazy, you know, eight, 12 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I just I never really got a got a good answer to that question because I always wondered, like, why is no one else doing this? I can't be the only one that sees this. Mm-hmm. And what were they doing? Know. What were they doing with it? Just chipping it and and getting rid of it or for the most part? Yeah, they just kind of let it go. I mean, if you drive uh it, as soon as you get west of the tunnel at the divide, it's nothing but gray. I mean, every tree is dead, you know, because what happened was, this is what the Forest Service says, back in the early 1900s, Industrial Revolution, we cut down like every tree in the forest to build shit with, right? And we replanted trees, but there's basically no age diversity in that part of the forest. You know, like within a close proximity to the railroad and now where I-70 is. So you need age diversity. Um, So now all the trees in the forest are just old and weak. And these beetles have always been around. But now our winters aren't as cold. So they need two two, um, back-to-back weeks of sub-zero temperatures to die off. And they used to every year. Well, now we rarely get two weeks consecutive weeks of sub-zero temperatures so now the beetles aren't dying off like they used to and you also couple in this issue with not a lot of age diversity in the forest so now all the trees or at least a significant majority of the trees are old and weak they have no way to fight themselves off thus the perfect storm four million acres so yeah i know that like you know the the trees that were close to um, campgrounds and ski resorts and, and you know more like tourist areas, they'd have to cut them down because they call them widow makers to where they'll just fall and they've killed people. You know, Granby had several deaths one summer of wow. beetle kill trees getting knocked over, uh, you know, and, and smashing a campsite in the middle of the night or who knows what. So no, there are, a lot of them are still there. Um, I think we used up, like we personally used up most of the uh, accessible trees. We milled over a million lineal feet of it in my time in Azor. Wow. So yeah, to answer your question, um, brevity is not a strength of mine. So I hope that <laughs> I hope that you guys are staying on track because we'll get in 10 tangents if you just let me go. Usually what happens anyway. So that's perfect. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but I hope I answered your question. No, you did. And it's, you know, so if I'm following along, you basically saw an opportunity to u- utilize this stuff and being a woodworker, as you said, you said, why don't I make furniture out of it? Is that right? Right, right. I only ever want to invest in things that I have an unfair advantage. If I have this idea that there should be furniture made out of beetle kill pine, but I'm not a woodworker, I don't want to walk down that path because mm-hmm. right off the bat, I'll need a technical co-founder and all this other stuff. So yeah, it was just kind of one of those, one of those, um, you know, timing is everything, right? In entrepreneurialism and, and, and business. Um, and when I, when I incorporated the company, so the, the funny reason that I actually started a company in the first was part of my compensation at the, at the kitchen shop that I was running was that I could use the shop to do personal projects. And if somebody wanted to pay me for them every now and again, I could build something. So these two bookshelves came up, the, it, it wasn't profitable for the shop to do them. So I personally took them. So I, they were rad too. Sliding dovetail, solid alder. They're really cool. 
Um, but anyway, just these two simple bookshelves, I deliver it and I'm standing there in the guy's, in the guy's entryway and he's like, yeah, who do I make the checkout to? And I went to say Corbin Clay, but I was like, well, that sounds unprofessional. So I said, Corbin yeah, Woodworking. And he goes, okay. And writes out Corbin Woodworking. And then I take it to the bank and they're like, yeah, hey, numb nuts, this isn't a thing. Like you can't just deposit a check for something that doesn't exist. So, so back then you could just register your trade name with the secretary of state from the banker's office. So Corbin Woodworking was uh, sole prop was registered that day. Um, and that's how it all started. And then, yeah, maybe six to 12 months later, you know, it was failing actually from that project where they had uh, the beetle kill ceiling. I pulled a bunch of that tongue and groove out of the scrap pile and went back and built two nightstands and just lived with them for a year, which was actually a policy that we had at Azor. We have to live, someone on staff lives with every single piece of furniture before we release it to the public. The new what? guy has like every new piece of furniture <laughs> in, his, in his apartment. Someone yeah, comes over and just bookcases. Does give a twin, a full, a queen, and a king bed in your house. <laughs> yeah. So, was that Paul? Was that when you said you lived with it for a year? Was that just by matter of fact, or was that in your mind saying, "I'm going to live with"? Like, was that intentional, or did you know? Did the policy yes. come? It was okay. No, hundred percent intentional in the early days because, kind of to your all uh, dumbfoundedness as well. It's just like, what, why were you the only one doing this? Why is nobody else doing something with this? I could. I mean, I was certain that something was wrong with it, and it turns out there wasn't. I mean, it is very hard to work with. It is so nice to call up your hardwood supplier and get 2,000 board feet of, you know, knotty alder or, you know, curly mare, whatever you're working with. And it shows up, you know, within a, you know, whatever your moisture content is out there on the coast. Um, it shows up perfect. You can get it as four, like done, right? Well, that does not exist. Um, we had to buy a special planer was segmented in feed rollers because our rough sawn wood was a full two inches but by that i mean inch and three quarter up to like two and three eighths all are two by fours um so it was a nightmare to work with but we felt it was important you know did you have um i feel like the biggest hang up for everyone i know you lightly touched on this would just be the fact that it's pine um yep and you know, a lot of people having a hang up with pine. It is a soft wood. It's not a super nice wood. It, uh, you know, it doesn't finish well, so it has to remain natural. And I feel like it could have a very, if done improperly or not styled correctly, it could be a very dated looking wood. Yep. Yep. So, um, a, a couple of things to that point. When I first started, um, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the finishing department at my apprenticeship a full year. And we were doing about a kitchen a week, um, you know, glaze finishes, um, like painted glaze finishes, you know, post cat stuff, like lots of pretty advanced finishing, which by the way, I understand through some of your guys' reviews that we don't get technical enough on this show. So I'm happy to go down a finishing rabbit hole at any time, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just setting that on the table. But no, early on, I, um, Naughty Alder was really, really big at the time in, in, in the mountains. So I was like, well, cool. We can make beetle kill pine with this awesome story look like Naughty Alder, especially if we paint it, you know, do a little rub through, 
like this will look just great. And I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, a Democrat running as a Republican will always lose to a Republican running as a Republican. Basically, like, just be yourself. Stop trying to, to shoehorn something into to where it doesn't otherwise fit. And that was a really important moment because we really hit the reset button. And it's like, we're not going to make a Heppelwhite secretary out of pine, let alone uh, pine with blue streaks running through it, right? So we looked at what aesthetics are already using pine and using it well. And Scandinavian style was what we came to. They're already using knotty woods. They have very understated, you know, lots of right angles, not a lot of curves, um, which from a manufacturing point of view was very convenient. Excuse me. So, yeah, we, I didn't want And there's other Scandinavian companies other than Ikea, right? Are they Scandinavian? Um, uh, yeah, they're out of uh, Sweden. Yeah, Sweden's in Scandinavia. Um. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at like, if you Google Scandinavian design or Scandinavian furniture design, there's some gorgeous stuff out there out of Naughty Pine. You see it a lot more in architectural millwork, mm-hmm. you know. But um, yeah, there's some gorgeous stuff out there. So, the the first collection I designed was way over designed, and it was just my own hubris. We had all this exposed joinery, and we were using that abet laminati. Um, the like the leather type of laminate on the drawer fronts and i was like these are awesome well it's awesome on a white background it's not awesome in someone's living room right good design has context so we were just over designing this stuff and we're spending all this time and effort doing this advanced joinery that no one even noticed and no one even cared about you know because they were buying the story i feel like that's what we deal with every day (laughs) <laughs> I can see that. It's like, what are people going to care about and what are they going to see? Like, yep. you know, what's the insulation package going to be? Right. And people don't realize it until you start naming, like I'm go out of my way to name off the envelope and what we're doing. And they're like, Oh, then, you know, they go back and search it up and then they go, all right, now I get this. Now I'm hip to it. And, but before that it wasn't even on their radar. Right. But it's the same thing. I mean, I would totally fall in the same category as you is do all the joinery, make it look dope, you know, and think that it would, it would fit in any design or that design would then be a magnet for that product. I also feel like at that point, you're kind of getting away from like, you're not letting the material speak for itself. You're, you're kind of implementing carpentry techniques and laminates that are stealing the show where at the end of the day, if you're trying to sell something that is this type of pine, that's what you need to kind of let speak for itself. Um, I also, I feel like pine has just had other than longleaf pine um, and like the old heart pine mm-hmm. pines had a rough run for a pretty long <laughs> time where it like, you know, knotty pine and cabins and lake houses. And other than that, it's like, or right, you can buy some, pine doors at home depot that people stain and they look like crap but it just it hasn't in in most of our markets it hasn't had a place for a really long time yeah yeah especially in in um you know handmade furniture that we're charging quite a bit for right yeah because you're gonna be spending so much money on on i mean it's like it's almost like lipstick on a pig right where you're gonna sit there and you're gonna spend all of this time and money building something, but at the end of the day, are you going to have people who are just going to say, well, it's, it's just pine, like it's pine and a beetle was going to, a beetle killed it. 
Um, yeah. which I think like that could be a hang up for people if not done well, if not marketed well, if not letting the material just speak for itself. Yeah. And to that point, that's, that's exactly the mistake I made early on is, you know, I was, I was trying to do, you know, stacked crown in a kitchen with this pine and then painting as if it were, you know, some type of like a naughty alder. I've, I've referenced naughty alder like eight times. I don't think I've said the phrase naughty alder once in the last five years, but here we are. <laughs> I did naughty alder on one job and I was like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> well, they, they call it a poor man's cherry. Yeah, so I'm yeah. scarred by it. I was like, oh, like, I didn't know what it was at the time. We put it into a house. It was a whole mudroom. And I remember we got it and I was like, what is that? Like, I thought something was wrong. I thought someone used the oh, wrong yeah, wood. Giant holes in the mouth. I was like, what is this? It's Naughty Alder. I was like, note the self. Yeah. <laughs> they clear that. Well, you know, it's when I when I started the company in that uh, lowly banker's office, I did a quick Google search when I got home. And at the time, there were o- over 90 other woodworking shops in the Denver Metro Boulder area. Why would I try to compete with those shops? Why would I throw my hat in the ring with William O's cabinetry and say, yeah, I'm better. I mean, no, you're not like William O's was crushing it. You know what I mean? You need to have something unique that you're doing. You need to have your own unique value proposition. And I had a marketing guy on my advisory board who was fantastic. And, and one of the big things he always talked about was tension points and culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can find or create a product or service that can alleviate a frustration, a tension point on behalf of your customer, you're, you're already walking down a good path. And our tension point out here was everyone goes skiing, everyone goes hiking. They see these dead pine trees and it's just such a bummer, you know, like we're just waiting for a giant forest fire to take, you know, a quarter of the state out. Everyone's bummed by it, you know? So when we show up and say, Hey, we're making stuff out of that wood you saw, like, you know, we're already, we're already in everyone's good graces. So, yeah, that's true. Who was when, it? Just Nick? Oh, I didn't know which one of you started talking. Oh, uh, no, I guess going back, so you made these night nightstands yep. and you were still working for another company. You had taken on that second job. How yep. long, like, what was the transition into Corbin woodworking? So the project that we had, at that second job, my buddy, Nick, coincidentally enough, um, really good veneer craftsman, um, got hired to do this project for a petroleum engineer that had no budget on it. I mean, no budget whatsoever. He just wanted to, to design, you know, each room of the house. So it was all VG fur. We actually flew a guy to British Columbia to select logs. Can we and- pause for a moment? Because I yeah. think we, we, I'd love to have a whole podcast on finding a client that doesn't have a budget. Because <laughs> that that would be that'd be great. They come with actually, their own issues. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I quit that job for a reason. So yeah, okay, <laughs> right. See, all right, like, all right. Yeah, it all sounds good. All right. <laughs> well, so anyway, uh, yeah, my my. So I'm running this cabinet shop. Um, it was actually a children's furniture company um, during the day, and then I go home, take a nap, get my dog. Uh, eat something quick and then go to the second shop at night. And basically he was just putting together a team of the best people in town. And I'm a damn good finisher. And we had to match all of this brand new fur veneer 
to solid VG fur that had already been in the, the, the part of the house that we were keeping. And it had aged, but it aged inconsistently and all this other stuff. So he said, do you want a job? I said, Ab- absolutely. You know, I, I, I had a hard time making friends in Boulder. Uh, they call them platinum hippies. I adore Boulder. But everyone there, I'd have my neighbors and friends say, hey, do you want to go skiing tomorrow? I'm like, it's a, it's a fucking Tuesday. Like- That's the problem. I went to school there for a year, and I had to leave. <laughs> oh, did you? Because it was like a bunch of rich kids from Greenwich, Connecticut, who were at school to ski. And like, I'm sitting there stressing, what am I going to do with my life? What am I, how am I going to pay for this education? What am I going to do done here? And everyone else is just like, oh, we're, we're going to go skiing happy all the time. And I'm not happy all the time. And I, like, it's just everyone's out there hippie tripping, smiling. They have nothing to worry about. And I'm sitting here like anxious, wondering about what I'm going to do with my life. And I was like, I can't be around people like this all the time. It just makes me feel like a piece I, of crap. I understand precisely what you're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point of that story is, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, so I just thought, well, hell, I, when I get into stuff, I get absolutely obsessed with it. And if I'm going to call myself a furniture maker, I am going to be obsessed with it until I feel like I have mastered the techniques that are important when one refers to oneself as a furniture maker, electrician, you know, whatever it is. So I was totally fine. This is when you guys remember uh, Tommy Mack. You guys know him down there in Boston. You know him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's right when he launched his video blog. Yeah. Uh, I think his show took a ship pretty quickly. It did, um, yeah, he like changed I, networks or something. Forgive the language. Uh, You're good. Yeah, he replaced Norm, he didn't he? can't replace Norm. I'll just get that straight. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say yeah, it so yeah. John could jump you in. I was like, wait a minute. John, you were so on point there. It was like, he replaced Norm. He can't play replace Norm. Like what? Come on. Like immediately. Hey. But yes, he's Dorothy he's Mantis local to is us. a saint. What'd you say? Yeah, so... um. I said Dorothy Mantooth is a saint. Oh. <laughs> What's that from? Uh, Wedding Crashers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. it was when. So yeah, he, that's he, that's right he when launched. he had launched that. Yeah. So I had these videos at home, you know, how to um, sharpen and then use a uh, cabinet scraper, card scraper. Awesome. Bought a burnishing tool. That was my weekend. You know what I mean? Uh, and it, I was fine with it. I was in my, you know, what, probably early 20s back then, mid-20s. You're in Boulder, Colorado. I had the shop to myself. So I was totally fine taking a second job, making really good money at that second job as well, as long as my puppy could be with me. I was totally fine spending, you know, 14, 16 hours a day just nerding the hell out on woodworking. So, yeah, I, I jumped right at it. What, um... So you said that you were finishing at your, at the kitchen company. So my apprenticeship was a two year apprenticeship, six months install, six months in the shop building. And then I, I just happened to spend a year back in the finishing department. One of the reasons I left is the manager of that department was retiring and it was clear that, that I was the uh, heir apparent. And I just thought, man, I can't stand here in this hundred degree Florida heat glazing cabinet doors all day like we're, we're all set and i was actually watching a dave matthews concert filmed at Folsom field there in boulder two weeks later i bought a jeep and moved to boulder and did you enjoy the finishing aspect of what you're doing as much as the carpentry aspect of it 
So I like the predictability of finishing. What predictability like... of finishing? <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> See, you finish on you finish. Yeah, on I mean, site. I guess that's, if you're in in a uh, a booth where you can control all of that crap, because I feel like you sneeze and it finishes differently than the last time you did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the trick. Um, is completely closed system, no air in the lines, or excuse me, no water in the air lines same exact system every single time and then the only variable you need to account for is the the temperature outside i really liked that i really liked uh i can't believe i'm i'm advocating on behalf of finishing because at the time i hated it <laughs> yeah absolutely hated it which is which is why at, at azure we didn't do any stains at all unless it was significant volume like for a hotel or something we used a water-based clear and we use water because it kept the pine really opaque. It didn't turn into that orange yeah. color that you see in, you know, the, the, the old the cabin that everyone hates. So we used right. a, in the right context is pretty, uh, but yeah, I can see where people. No, like, I feel like anytime you put any white. like oil or solvent on pine, it just, it turns yellow and it turns yeah. like oh, it's a, old. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. Immediately. So no, we use water on that. It kept it really, really opaque. It was a nightmare because all of a sudden you're basically spraying every piece of furniture with a hose. Um, so, you know, you got a bunch of grain rays and I think it was, we never actually diagnosed it fully, but we'd have all these little bumps that would happen and there was compressed grain and then it would bump up. And I think it was where the mill was like grabbing the logs to load onto the saw or whatever. But every single time we hit that first coat, all these little, bump, 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 they just pop up. You know, there'd be five sometimes, there'd be 20 sometimes, which was a nightmare. But again, you know, we felt it was important, you know, to deal with all these things um, because anybody can build furniture, but it, 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 it makes it much easier and more palatable to deal with all the bullshit one deals with in running a company when there is some mission toward which you are all working you know and that's one of the reasons i i sold the business is because it got to the point to where i had accomplished what i'd set out to do create some solution to all these dead pine trees but we'd done that and we were doing it and i had a hard time rallying my team on like this is why we're doing what we're doing every day this is why we got to work all weekend this is why we got to stay late so i can make more money you know, I, I had a hard time. So it's like, it's, it's time to leave. I, I, I did what I set out to do. Was transitioning and even using water on them, obviously there's a, a finish. Um, there's reasons behind using water it, with the pine if you're looking to kind of like mute the wood some. But was it that also kind of fit the mission statement of what you're looking to do? Like, was that something that you promoted that you were using water finishes? Absolutely. The water that, that we use was um, Green Guard certified at the time, yeah. which was huge, huge for lead points, which I don't know if lead is much of a thing anymore, but at the time it very much was. And we actually worked with our local congressman to help change the USGBC standards on what um, locally sourced materials could be used because you had all these giant resort projects in the mountains surrounded by beetle kill and they didn't get any lead points for using that beetle kill. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I very much wanted, I love products and, and services that sound almost too good to be true and leave you absolutely no reason to not 
purchase it, right? It's reasonably priced. It solves your problems, free shipping, you know, on and on and on. You're just like, this is great. They figured everything out for me. And I just would have, have hated to have said, look how environmentally friendly this is. We're using the dead trees. Oh, and we're going to uh, give you cancer with all the urea formaldehyde. It's off gassing. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to spray a bunch of chemicals on it and then it's <laughs> off gas and offset the fact that we just saved all of these trees in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for the FEMA trailer. We just made you live in. Whatever, but we saved a bunch of dead trees. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. To, the, the, the environmental, um, I say, responsibility part of waterborne finishes as opposed to solvent certainly informed our decision on using that in addition to the aesthetics of it staying a little more opaque so then when you started digging it's i mean it it somewhat sounds like you flew by the seat of your pants with this and got this rolling um but as as you kind of progress in this process were you learning more and more whether it were tax benefits or um, like government, not necessarily loopholes, but um, things that kind of helped you on your way that once you got into this, realizing like, wow, this could actually be more lucrative than we had anticipated being that we're doing this, 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 and this. Aside from the otherwise low unit price of the material, right? We were paying about 17 cents a board foot what's walnut nowadays seven bucks maple is four you know what i mean i don't, I don't know so, what white oak is but it, you can't find it anywhere right oh really there's a shortage white, of white oak, oak right now is oh lord it's impossible we we're gonna do a white oak kitchen in this next house so we might have to reevaluate <laughs> I, I think you only have to use the beetle pine yeah <laughs> i'm pretty sure like it's in like your dna we've got yeah. This first house, we've got we've got uh, what about four or five thousand feet of beetle kill in there. We painted it all, but but yeah, yeah stay true to my. I roof. picture you like Chip and Joanne. You just put shiplap instead of shiplap. It's beetle kill like <laughs> everywhere. I feel like the uh, only like, wood that there is right now there's there's painted wood, walnut, and white oak. That's about it. Like maple, <laughs> nobody uses anymore. Yeah, unless Pine. you're doing a butcher block. Right? Yeah, like cherry. Nobody uses oh, it anymore. That's where they're like all their poor man's cherry. And then it's like, nobody even uses cherry anymore. <laughs> yeah. Poor cherry. Cherry's so damn pretty. It is, but it like, it's the same thing. It looks super dated. And then you get light on it and it just darkens and darkens. And it's like, it's pretty, but you put it in a kitchen. I feel like cherry would be work well in a library, like a custom library that was all cherry. Yeah. Yeah. But it's tough Mahogany in a kitchen. Too. Yeah. But even like back in the day, I feel like they used to build, you could still get windows and sashes and stuff made of mahogany, but yeah. it's all, it's expensive now. But back yeah. in the day when I was my age, it used to be Spanish cedar was like everything. Yeah. Outside. It was Soft all wood. Spanish cedar. And now it's like, what do you, I used to go to a shop in, in Brighton and they'd have these, it looked, it looked crazy. It was like all these black tarp covered stacks of, Spanish cedar and they just bought it all when it was low price and they had it for like decades. They had yeah. it there. But then it's like then it just disappeared. Like no one I mean, yeah, I think people I feel like you buy stuff in catalogs. It's like it's like ballasts that are turned out of pine. Like all the stuff that's in catalogs, stuff that's in Home Depot. There's a lot of it there. Yeah. You mean no. you guys aren't doing your high end construction with finger jointed 
project boards from your local home center. Fine. So we don't try what do you mean? Like you turn seasons. the heat on and it shrinks up a half inch. Like that was hey, definitely but... tight before. <laughs> How the hell that just happened. Oh, fine. I see. I take offense to all the, all the, uh, all the shit talk on pine the same way that that your colleague there does on uh, norm not getting the credit he deserves i i think that <laughs> i don't it's just funny because i feel like people either want a reclaimed vintage like a heart pine or nothing yeah. like that's that's the only pine that people find desirable right now and I think that I think that pine was done so incorrectly for so many years, and people putting orange stains on them, and and not letting the actual. I mean, realistically, people started harvesting pine just like anything else way too quickly. So, like mm-hmm. you look at you look at heart pine where it grew slow, and you have all of that beautiful graining in it, and now like you get new pine that grew so quickly. And then they slice it and it's got this open grain that's like inches long. It doesn't take stain well. It doesn't finish well. It's super soft. It bleeds sap for however long. So like nobody's helped pine out at all, right? Like if you, if you go, go you around here, there's so many, so much of the subfloor back in the day was pine, like tongue and groove pine that they, they ran and then they put their plywood over top of it and people have gone back to ripping everything off and then finishing that subfloor and it's still like the two and a quarter and you go and you buy a piece to put in its place and patch it and like you finish the floor all the same and it's you might as well have just put a piece of like poplar in there there's the new patch the new pine doesn't match at all it just go it grows so quickly but i i think that I think that if people, I don't know, I don't know what, I haven't seen the pine that you guys used. It's just that from what I have seen, it's been used so poorly. And it's like, you know, the, you go to a cabin and they have the, um, like five panel, six panel, uh, raised panel pine doors. And then like pine two and a quarter inch casing that somebody put this horrible orange, yellow, um, like stain on. And uh, I don't think that they've helped that wood out at all. Or it's painted and they didn't back prime it. So the knots, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Like they put the paneling up and then somebody (laughs) wanted to turn it white and you just see the bleed through (laughs) everywhere. Every time, every time I go to IWF, um, we did, we did a lot of work with Festool, um, like promotional work. And, you know, I'd be at these different shows on, you know, with them and, and I'm talking to people and, Tell them what we're doing in Colorado. It's the exact same response. Let's go, pine, huh? Okay, well. Well, I think that, working. I mean, to Tyler's point, like he just said, he, I think he's scrolling. John just sent you, sent Tyler the link to your social media. And I think scroll, if you scroll way back. That's yeah, we're at where, the please, beginning. Yeah, please scroll like, way back. Right, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that, that, that part. But <laughs> if you scroll way back, you see the muted furniture and it is it's it's really modern contemporary and scandinavian's yeah. a great look and it looks I mean, raw it looks yeah raw. it looks raw and i think that it's not, that it's exactly what you're saying tyler it's that's not what we envision pine to be i yeah you know it's like you're i'm you're envisioning 
you know, the, the mill stores, you know, stuff. It's yeah, like the, the shops a, that you go by and it's unfinished. Yeah. Log, like log cabin ish. And this is, this is not, it's this muted, really, really cool variation in, in, in the, the beetle pine. Um, well, yeah, I think go- that like even joinery plays a role in that because most mm. of the pine carpentry that I see, it's like, yo, you <laughs> took a Home Depot class on the weekend and built that nightstand. It was a kid's class. <laughs> like you bought a brand it's new like Craig blowout. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that, that subtle execution, I think helps a lot as well. Um, no, I like this stuff. I think, I think it is pretty. Um, and I, it's funny because a lot of people don't want to use water, water finishes when they're leaving something natural because it does really mute the tones of the wood and then it doesn't age. Um, yeah. It just kind of keeps that look forever, which is why most people get away from it and they want to put an oil on it. They want to really bring out the, the undertones of the wood. But I think with something like pine and looking at these pictures, it definitely helps it out because it, it does kind of... Uh, it makes it look more uniform um, and it doesn't, you're not trying to hide something. My I mean, audio t- froze. Tyler, I know you're talking about, well, let me turn this. Uh, I think I might still be on Wi-Fi. Tyler, I think you're talking about furniture and, and that stuff, but I'm thinking about like flooring. Yeah. Is that a lot of times we are trying and you know, Nick, you and I walked at this old house, um, house at time. We both stopped when we walked in and was like, did you guys finish this floor? Like we were freaking out that there wasn't protection down all the way. Yeah. And we were like, and they were like, no, that was like, was that Loba back in the day? Natural or whatever. Is no, it was, no, it wasn't Bond. It was, it was like Loba and it looked literally raw. Yeah. And it looked amazing. And I know both Nick and I walked away. We did them like two jobs from then. We did it on our on projects, but I feel like it's two things. A lot of our clients want it. Can we leave it the way it is when it yeah. goes down? That's what I get a lot of. And then the other part is, is we've been doing a lot of that fuming, which is like, it almost looks like how I put it, which is like the simplest terms out there is people want that restoration hardware look, that wire brush look. How do you get that in the floors? And, you know, we've, Will's done that with, you know, Premier, that, that it's got that crazy kind of look to the floor. We've done that for all of our high-end stuff has been that kind of fuming process. And it looks absolute dynamite basically you show it to a client so it's you are getting that but you're you're getting the green yeah. to pop through that fuming ammonia like, fuming it's not ammonia no, like it's the hard wax oil, oils right? and all that crap like all the oh, natural yeah. oils they call it fuming i thought it was ammonia as well and it wasn't it basically turns the wood purple oh, okay. on the first round and then they come back and coat it again and it basically Every time I don't want to be there during the first process, because I'm always like, "Dude, what you yeah. get this floor? It's five thousand square feet. How am I even gonna?" Yeah, and then they you got to trust the process a hundred and fifty percent, and then they put on this next top coat, and it looks absolutely great. It, it's like a little bit of white they can add to it, so it catches the grain, and it and it makes it pop. So it's really, I don't sidetrack, but Tyler, it's usually like keep it just the way it yeah. is when it goes down. Or how do you get me that little play of restoration hardware? And I'm probably playing that wrong, but no. But I feel like a lot of those hard wax oils, they do a good job of bringing out the tones of the wood, but then the finish of it is almost like buttery. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
It is the most slipperiest floor. It just it like it it that that stuff is a little bit different because it, it's it's not necessarily muting the wood, but the the finish itself it it almost feels like velvety, and it does it doesn't create like this sheen that makes it seem like a semi gloss uh, floor finish. Hundred percent. Um, and I do like that stuff too, which is, it's and it the wears same super well. Yeah. Yep. We just went back into our Dover project and they have a dog and I was, I was freaking out. You spend so much money on that floor and they're going to have a dog and the thing races around. It's, it zooms around the house and we were looking around like, how's it holding up? He's like, literally, you can't even tell with the dog. Yeah. Like the dog comes in the door. You, you just think the dog comes in one door every time and you can't tell. And I'm like that I'm sold. And it's super easy to like touch up at that point too. Yeah. They can come in and touch up whenever they want. And then if they just want to add another coat, yeah. it's, it's so much less evasive than the normal, even water-based finishes. Yeah. No, we did Sorry, it on we did it on the uh, on one job where it was like a character grade hickory, I think, and I like I loved the way that it looked afterwards. But it was you know natural, no stain, no finish, no color. Um, just kept. Nick, it was natural. that Loba at this old house? That was yeah. It was Loba invisible. Dude, it and looked like it was. Yeah, it was Gone. totally bare. I, I use that on one job, and then they have uh, Bona has the natural. Natural, yeah. It's not the Which, same though. It's not, but if you use um, traffic, a na- you use the natural with the natural sealer or something like that, it gets it pretty close. But the natural does have like a like I don't. I'm gonna make this up a five percent sheen where invisible has like zero. Like it's completely matte. And do you think any floor guy actually puts the primer on? They always <laughs> say they do two coats. I they, they always say when they leave, they're like, yeah, we put the primer in, we got a coat in too. And then I walk in there and I go, I'm fucking suspect of you. Yeah, dude, I always <laughs> wonder I'm about watching. that too. Because like they'll give me their schedule and how many coats they're going to get per day. And then they're always behind schedule and don't get stuff done, but then still get out they at always, the same time. Or they gain and like, and finish. Yeah, I'm like, like how, how did you get through? Like, you were you were one coat behind everything on schedule, but then you stayed, you got I've out at the dealt, same time. I've never dealt with that with floor guys, but I know, and we're sidetracking hard here. But <laughs> I remember when I first started my company, I was working with a painter who was highly recommended to me, and it was like three jobs in when I remember going in. He's like, we just wrapped up all the ceilings, and I'm like, that's primer. He goes, it's the same thing. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, it's the same thing as ceiling paint. And I remember yeah, picking it up. It and doesn't I looked cover. At, and I looked at the back and it's I'm like, bare. It's, it's primer not only color. is it primer, but it's also, it says on it, not made for plaster. Oh, God. Even better. I was like, this is, this is for drywall only. And yeah, same it was thing. like plaster and drywall. Same thing. Like my, and, and I remember the I remember the last time like when I caught it, the client also said something about it and I was like, Yeah, I'm just this is I'm in for a world of hurt here. Yeah, that sucks. But um All right, all so right. where were we? I, I wanna go back so Corbin, going back, you're working at night, 16 hours a day, geeking out on on this stuff. You build these nightstands, you live with them for a year. It sounds like this is kind of where you're starting to use Beetle Kill Pine, building furniture on your in this side job but at some point it turned into azure yeah well so so it it was originally corbin woodworking um and then it was 
2012, 2013 or so when I realized that we need to, I'd actually started getting some business advice from people and we'd had, you know, three, four years of difficulty under our belt, you know, working around the clock. This is after I started the company, right? So working around the clock, never seemed to have any money, damn sure don't have any free time. Like, what am I doing wrong? Clearly there's something wrong here. So the best entrepreneurs I know ask for help. I mean, if, if there is one, if there is one common personality trait to the best business owners and entrepreneurs that I know, it is that they have the humility to say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. I'm good at these things. I don't know anything about these things. Um, so I, I would like to claim some membership to, to that club. <laughs> so I just started asking around, you know, everybody I know, uh, we, we had one really wealthy, very successful customer that had her own business. She helped me out a lot. I would just what, start cold emailing. What were you asking? Like what questions were you asking? So it depended. So I put together an advisory board, a very unofficial advisory board. There are no, you know, shares issued or anything, but it would depend on the context and it depend on the person's background. So, so we did a bunch of work for a whiskey company out here, a spirits company called Leopold brothers. And there are two brothers, one of whom is a Stanford finance grad. I didn't go to college. I don't know the first thing about business finance. Right. So, you know, I would just have these certain issues. I would try to, I would try to, you know, collect three or four issues that I was really dealing with. How do I know what to pay myself? When do I hire that next employee? Um, is there a ratio out there of what my total salary to top line spend should be? You know, just all these kind of basic metrics that it's no different than as you're learning woodworking. Um, you know, how do we cut this specific miter? You know what I mean? Do we cut it flat? Do we cut it nested? I don't know. What does the context require, right? And that was the answer I got a lot. And, and early on, I would make the mistake of just asking these like super vague questions. And then I ultimately learned these people are just as busy, if not busier than I am, running their own companies that are much, much bigger. So I need to hone in on, say, three to five specific issues I'm dealing with, um, you, you know, that, that, that these guys can just critique as opposed to me saying, hey, what should I do for a marketing campaign next year? And the guy's like, dude, we charge seven figures, you know, right. to answer that question. Um, so, so it would really depend on the time and the circumstance and the specific advisor with whom I was having a chat to see what are they good at? You know, I have basically finance, business, marketing, and just kind of another like business advisor, you know, people that had, had, had shown to be successful with their respective businesses that obviously know more than I do. I mean, it's a fairly safe assumption that they know more than I do. So I just want to sit and listen, you know, just ask as many questions as possible, just get them talking. And it's kind of like a podcast, right? You listen to an hour long podcast, you might get 55 minutes worth of good content. You might get one 10 second, 10 second nugget that you leave with that could spiral into a, a pivot of your business. Who knows what, right? So I would just, you know, ask lots of questions. They weren't too specific other than, I remember one time it was, I was having dinner with, uh, with an advisor. She's actually a customer turned advisor. 
still a good friend. She was at our wedding. Um, and we just finished up a huge hotel and I'd set aside, we used to do a 60, 40 deposit, uh, balance structure, right? So we were able to produce almost the entire project, seven figure project on that 60 for 60%. Our numbers were airtight. Our, our shop was just humming. Like we had super efficient processes in place. To where that last 40%, when we got that check, we didn't own any money on it. Like we didn't have any bills to pay, payroll was up, everything was ready. So I set aside three months for overhead and, you know, set aside a few other things. And we were having dinner, she and I. And uh, I said, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to move some money over and like buy some land. And she's like, yeah, cool, do it. I was like, you know, but man, what, what about six months from now? What if, you know, the, you know, the straight line rip breaks and now I got to write another $15,000 check to replace that or, or, or fix or whatever. What if I'm not going to have payroll one day, this and that. And we're a bottle of wine in, but she slams her fork down and she says, that is your money. She says, you're the one that took the risk. You're the one that spent all your life savings getting the equipment for the shop. You're the one that puts yourself out there publicly to where if you fail, a lot of people are watching it. That is your money. If you want to buy something, then take that money and buy it. And I'd never been talked to like that. You know, I'd never, I never heard somebody say, because I never thought it was my money. Like, you know, we, 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 us, employees, team, family, like, I got guys on staff making 14 bucks an hour. How am I going to write myself a check for a hundred grand? That just felt inappropriate. Right. And this lady really helped me understand. It's like you made 14 bucks an hour at 1.2 when you were entry level of your career. I hate to say it, but they're not worth more than 14 bucks right now, you know? And she just kind of helped me like really understand that it's like, you're the one that took all the risk. You're allowed to do this. Do you think that's detrimental to a lot of business owners that have that same mindset? Like the whole team approach that, you know, they're, they're nothing without their team and the people who work for them, but then always putting them before themselves. I'm yes looking at no. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I mean, listening. you know, when it became, when it became very obvious that, I was making, continuing to make unnecessary and now unreasonable sacrifices that didn't need to be made, then yes, it, it, it in fact became detrimental. So to answer your question, yeah, if, you, if you've reached a point um, to where you can move money over to yourself, right? It's like, when do you finally take that, take that leap to say, you know, I'm giving myself a raise you know, or I'm going to move a hundred K over because I want to go buy this piece of property or whatever the case is, right. There's always uncertainty, you know, and, and I think that you can just, you can, what if your what, what if yourself till you're blue in the face, you know, but, it, and that's what she really helped me understand is just like, after a while, you just kind of have to be a little selfish, you know, not irresponsibly selfish. You don't want to be reckless. You don't want to be missing payroll because you bought a Corvette. You're just an asshole at that yeah, you point. You should never buy a Corvette. But just, be, just put that out there. Yeah, I mean, come on. Well, they got the new mid I mean, they're not too buy bad. a Ferrari. <laughs> hey, you know who drives? Hey, Norm drives a Corvette. Baby, 
does. No way. He drives he a Beamer. I saw it. He does drive a Beamer. He, he built it himself, yeah. too. He drove by me, and I was like, you should be in an old F100. <laughs> like, no, I guess, Tyler, to your point, I do think it does hold people back, uh, owners. But I also think there's something about – I've tried to – I thought about this long and hard. Like, almost every ride home is like, you know, there's something that keeps me on my toes. For example, myself, I can't speak for anyone else, is that – keeps me on my toes because I feel like I haven't succeeded yet. And there's something that there's always something to prove tomorrow. And there's always something to, to make happen. And as soon as I make that move where there is enough, there is enough to cover and I'm not worried about that, then I'll let my guard down. It's almost like whenever anything is running smooth, I, I don't ever enjoy it. I'm always when like, does All anything right, ever run smooth. It is occasionally, but you never want to admit it because like you're a few like seconds. That means something's going to fall apart or I'm not looking in the right spot. What's so, going to hit me. <laughs> yeah. You get me. It's like, so to, to that entrepreneurial thing is like, yeah. Like, do I want to let into the fact that maybe part of the chase is, is chasing that success and that we always up the bar a little bit because we never want to, we enjoy that chase. We weren't in the game to be successful. I mean, obviously we were. It sounds ridiculous. I get it. But it's like I enjoy the game of getting there a lot. Yeah. I guess I think of it also from the standpoint where you're you're so concerned with putting everyone before yourself and making sure that everyone's accounted for and everyone has everything that they need that you're not focusing on your own needs. And I'm always of the mindset where it's how good of a husband can you be? How good of a father can you be? How good of a business owner can you be if you're not taking care of yourself? Because um, <clears throat> I feel like the, the, we're going to, you know, I'm going to be the best husband I can be if mentally I'm in a good place or if I have enough sleep or if jobs are going well or I have everything in order. And I just feel like if, if you're in a position within your company that you can't take care of yourself, you can't reap any of the rewards for the sacrifices and um, the positions that you put yourself into that, like, how good of a boss can you be? Um, are you being the, the best business owner that you can be if you don't have the ability to take care of yourself? No, it's true. But on the flip side, we've all had those bosses that, that you've built their summer home yeah, and you've built their stuff. They've built their success in your back. Well, all right. So Corbin, well, that's and, taking advantage of people. I know, but that, that is, I think that's what I've grown up around. So it's like, yeah, I had a part in that meaning I didn't, I didn't ask for more on my own terms. I didn't go, Hey, as that carpenter, I should have made, made $25 an hour instead of 18. So is he taking advantage of me or am I just, not valuing myself. I look at it both ways. But yeah, I think we've all been, Nick, jump in there. Well, I was going to say, Corbin, in that, you know, you're sitting at dinner, she throws her fork down, she's, you know, kind of set. Was it was it your table? No, it was <laughs> not like, a fork. Because that thing she put the fork into your table. If it was pine, yeah, it was listen, definitely that's pine, dented. That shit's soft. <laughs> she, uh, she dented that. it and the table broke and it was very embarrassing. You so I didn't actually it. sell Return policy. Yeah, we we went bankrupt after that. So after this, like you're getting set straight, right? And and more or less, you you make. Did you end up buying the piece of land at that time? Yeah, that next morning I moved a hundred thousand dollars over. Right. So it 
that probably changed your mindset in the business. And, you know, with that being said, I think getting after what John's talking about, was there ever a time in the business that, you know, the kid making $14 an hour or someone else in the business looked at you and said, had any, you know, any negativity to you utilizing your success? Like, hey, maybe you should be focused more on us or maybe we, you know, you should be more focused on the business. They don't rather- tell the boss. They talk to everyone else at the coffee break and go, you hear that shit? Yeah, I mean, uh, right. But that, that chat, but that, that chatter moves around. That, that, chatter, that, that chatter always comes around at some point. The license I guess- plate says number one boss. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> so, so to answer, to answer yeah. your question, um, about year four or five, I started, I made an org chart for about 10 different positions when I was the only employee on staff. I started to think of my business the same way that I think of whatever product I'm producing, right? I started to envision and then ultimately articulate a plan for what the Azure Furniture Company looks like when it is finished. Whatever that is, you know, personally for you guys, what does your business look like when it's finished? You know exactly what the house looks like when it's yeah, finished to break it down to furniture, you were like, if I'm going to make this table, it needs four legs, a top, blah, blah. You made it that similar. It was like, Hey, I just want to, yes. yeah. Right. You just was like, you know what? It's, it's exactly like the components I need for that table or that chair. It's what I need for I, my business. Uh, I mean, it wasn't by any means that, that, um, well, that I feel like simple. a lot of people listen to this go, I don't know how to make an org chart. And it's like, but it is, it can be as simple as writing down what your stock list is, you know, oh. the, the tools you need and, and how to dial it in that way. It is very similar in that way where someone that says they can't make an org chart, it, it's, it's just that easy. No, here's the thing. First of all, have a shred of resourcefulness and do a Google search. You're not allowed anymore in 2021 to say, I don't know this about this. Like you should be able to educate yourself enough to be dangerous in any subject, right? You're just choosing not to, but no, there there's, what do you want out of your business? Why did you start your business? And this is, this is specifically for you, but it's also just a general question that every freaking business owner should ask him or herself. What is the point of your business? You personally. And then when you come up with the answer, you say, okay, cool. This is what I want out of this venture. And then you start to dis- like to basically work back from there, right? I want to make a quarter million a year. How do I make a quarter million a year? Well, now I'm making 50,000 a year. All right, cool. There's a way to get there, right? I'm making 50K a year with one crew. So I either need to raise my prices, cut my costs, or add four more crews, right? I mean, again, this is a very complex subject that it's hard to just give, you know, pithy <laughs> cogent answers to, but, but that's basically what I did. And I, st- I really started nerding out on my company as if it were a franchise. If I were to write down a book 
of this is how to run the Azure Furniture Company. I am not needed in this process. I am now going to give you, Johnny, this book so you can open up the, is it Wellesley or Wesley? Wellesley, yeah. Yeah, that branch of the Azure Furniture Company. Not a good venture, my man. I don't think Beetle Kill will do well, but <laughs> you, un you understand my yeah. point. It's like when you start to look at your business and you, and you start to replace yourself within that organization with systems, then all of a sudden you have metrics and accountabilities for each of those systems and each of those positions. So then when you, when you slowly start to fill each one of those systems, which either multiple systems handled by a single person or you know, individual systems handled by individual people, whatever it is specific to your organization and, and the requirements of your organization, then after a while you realize the people that are doing their respective jobs are doing it for what is a reasonable market rate. All of our systems are working. Once all your systems are working, you realize that this company you built is just a little profit machine. Income in profit out because all of our systems are working. So then it makes it much, much easier to say, well, everyone is taken care of. And I know that because we have metrics in place. We have systems in place to say, if this happens, then this happens. Lots of if then logic, right? So it's very easy to say, well, everything is taken care of. Literally everything is taken care of because we have a system in place for that. Very thoughtful. So now if there's money left over, that was one of the original points of creating all these systems. So it makes it, it makes it a lot easier because I, I'm a big numbers guy. I'm a big data guy to where as, have you guys ever read the, uh, uh, the lean startup? No. Fantastic book. It basically talks about make as few assumptions as possible with anything you do in your business. So you come up with a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis. I'm going to use this email greeting, um, you know, whenever someone reaches out to me and then you just start to put together data, you start collecting data. Right. So, so anyway, I'm real big on that stuff. And then after a while you can, you, you, you switch from subjective to objective, right? You can say, I'm looking at these numbers objectively, everything is taken care of. Customers are happy. Revenue comes in, profit goes out. Everything is working. I'm now going to take a draw. I'm with you. I just feel like a lot of people that listen to this go, I'm just a carpenter. It's above my pay grade. You know, you know and, and that's a mistake where if you, I talk to people every week and they're like, where do I start? And I'm like, write down your data. Like I talked to someone last week and like, I'm going to build my first house next, next. I sign a contract. I'm freaking out. What do I do? And it's like, what's the contract for? And they're like, 400,000. I'm like, is it open-ended? Meaning, is it a cost plus scenario? Because things might fluctuate. Cover your basis that way. I go, but honestly, even if you have a little bit of profit that covers everything, that's a bonus. Because the amount of data you're going to get out of this build is crucial for your next two or three products that come down the line. If you're getting out of whatever it is, let's say it's deck building or doing something that's very specialized. And now this is a big jump for you, which I think is possible with this economy. It's just not just taking that on and, and having the blinders on and going, how do I make it through this project? How do I make it through this build? But actually having a notebook and tracking every ounce of it. So that way, when you go to the next 
depth or the next bid comes in and someone goes, Hey, I like we did in that one. I have a project, my budget 600,000. Guess what? You need to know right then and there it's a yay or nay. And if you don't know that, then you failed on that project. That's the true failure of that first project. Mm -hmm. Because if you go down that road and you say yes to the next two builds and they, you didn't realize your numbers didn't work on the first one. You, now you're two years in on, you made profit on, on, you know, the cabinet shop. These guys don't know that until they're two years in. And that's why there's this unknown if yeah. you're not tracking your numbers. And it gives me the ability to make, Nick, you and I've talked about it, a project that comes along and you, you may fall in love with it or it, it obstructs your view of reality that you should say no. Is that? <laughs> are, you, are you poking at me, John? No, I'm the same way. We're, we're both the same way. And it's like, right. but how do I do a feasibility study on this? So I'm not just burning my time when the reality is it is a non-starter right. and I'm lying to myself. Right. And we, I think that's, that's the flaw in almost all of us is that we fall in love with something that isn't profitable for what we can do. Right. Not that your skill's not there, not that your sub pool, the architecture doesn't have the details. It's the fact that that product doesn't fit your actual company. And we get stuck in that and then you get in that rut and man, by the time and people just ignore it because they're still working day to day. It's like, it's not like they're failed. You get me? Cause then they'll make the next one work a little, they'll tweak it 1% and they're improving. And that's not going to be enough to, to have, you know, you retired early, but just, just the retirement in general, like to have that 401k, you're not going to draw that 2% out of your paycheck because that 2% counts. That's why people always get whacked this time of year because they haven't pulled anything out. They've used every bit of their salary, their checks to, to make life happen on a day-to-day -day basis. And then by the end of it, they're like, oh, oh my God. Like this time of year, it's like, it's spooky for people tax season when it's coming up. It's like, they, they just ignored it to this day. And this is a reality. And this is, this is people's true, like, New Year's resolution. I'm going to do it differently this year. It's, it's tax season. It's not January 1. So do you guys all have a goal with your respective businesses? Get out alive. The one singular goal? Get out artist. alive. Don't kill myself. That's horseshit, guys. <laughs> I know. I, I would say yes, but I know like mine, I feel like constantly changes. Mm -hmm. And... I'm frustrated that it changes. So I would have to, I would have to, if I'm answering honestly, I think not a hundred percent and I'm working, especially more recently hard to un really understand and, you know, and kind of dissect what that is because I'm doing exactly what you're talking about. I'm, I'm looking at the goal. I'm looking at good what John's, do I want to make? Look at John's yeah, shitty John, big grin John, on his face right now. He doesn't have, now. He doesn't have his He's like, I'm going to show him, I'm going to show him my Venn diagram. John, yeah. John has like his papers <laughs> that he's been drawing on the kitchen table, the, the rain happened? sitting in. We just my saw you got your plan. business plan from the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got it. But it's like, he's been waiting. How old are you? 41. Waiting 40. Look at this. One years that, for this. That's my, it's my full plan that I rewrote after, uh, last client, podcast client offer no client offered me he goes if i put a half a million dollars into your company what would it do and i was like i'll be right back <laughs> no i was just like um what would i do with it like i remember the first time a client asked me that i was like i'll buy property and that was the wrong answer 
and this time I, I would scale to an uncomfortable point that I knew it would work once I got all together. So I broke this out. You guys can't see it, but I literally put, you know, I put the company structure in place and then I created three different divisions, the custom division, the, the development division and the concierge division. And I broke out each individual person I needed, how many people they are, what their salaries are. Then I broke down each division. So what my, what, what my monthly payroll is for, all, if I were to add the concierge division tomorrow, what that would cost and then what the benefit would be. And then if I were to use just development, what that would need. And then if I were to double up on the, custom division which now i look at it i think i drew this I don't know guys for anyone ago. listening we'll make sure we include a link to this entire pdf no, <laughs> <laughs> it's got every number it just and i do it in different colors so it, i understand when i look back at it what that train of thought was it's worth that the colors things was. working well for you i know right? Colorblind. <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell i was thinking you know that your mind was just like racing one day well you can tell it, it was tell by the way he's the first looking, time like, he's looked back at he's it. talking about it and he's yeah. like his voice he's slows like, Wait, down this he's doesn't like make sense yeah what was i thinking here well because when i wrote this it was like you were yeah. drunk when you wrote it no my, I mean, it's my like wife one was, of those things where it's like i completely forgot that i did that until he just said that I'm i felt like i was this. the dude from goodwill hunting <laughs> okay i was just drawing on the racer board and then i blacked out no, I look at it now and it's like the custom division. I had a, two PMs and two supers running four products. I had the product values broken down. And now I look at it now and we have three PMs and three supers. And it just, uh, I need to look back at it. But I moved Benny into the GM role. Operations did that. So yeah, this did happen. But the funny thing was after I did the math, the whole thing, whatever, sidetrack, was that if, if I broke it down to what or I was comfortable, like what I'm paying now for, for overhead, you know, for, for my, my payroll biweekly. And then I broke it down. If I were to add concierge, that whole division, it was going to change my payroll by like short money. It's almost like buying a house and then going, well, you know, like when a client buys a house from us, it's like, you know, if we want to add a pool, it's 200 K 200 K to a, a $3 million mortgage. $300,000 mortgage is, is a fraction. So it's like, when I look at that concierge, like, come on, I could honestly add that division now and it would increase my payroll by like two grand. Like that's not crazy. And the benefit out of it would be huge for us. So that's why I did it. Cause it made myself feel better. And then I had a whole division for, you know, what do I do with a controller? And that's why we're making that step. Now we're hiring a new controller for the business and what that, what that salary intakes? What's that going to do? What's it going to take off my shelf? You know? So, Corby, to answer, on, man. Yeah, to answer your question, John is by far the most analytical when it comes to this. And I'm like head underwater with it right now. It just, you know, actually, you know, we scaled very quickly, hired a lot of people. We've built, you know, multiple divisions in, the, in my company. And now it's a matter of refining all of those divisions. And, you know, in last year, we, we made tremendous progress. And this year, we're looking to make even more progress and more refinement. And it is, it's, you know, I started working with a coach and it was, it, it was exactly what you said. It's like, what do you want to make a year? You know, what do you want to do? How, ma- how much time do you want to spend with your kids and your wife a, a week? And in outlining the things that I didn't, ha- I didn't make considerations for where it's like all I was considering was the, the company, the, the people, 
the projects and forgetting the fact that in order for me to do all those things, I wasn't even in tune with the fact that I was working 80 hours a week to get that and taking a salary that didn't equate to 80 hours a week. So it, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. And that's why I don't think I can answer honestly that, yes, I know what that end goal is. I, I feel as though I know what I want right now, but I be, I'm curious to see like, as I work through the, the organization and refinement of the company as to if that is actually in tune with what I want now. Are you the sole shareholder? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right on. Yeah. Tyler's digging into my, I just sent these guys the, uh, the photo of my, I just shared it. (laughs) (laughs) So Corbin, I want to, I want to go back to something you, you had said that you put together an advisory board. Yeah. I wrote that down too. (laughs) You you skimmed over that. You said there's no, they, they don't have any, uh, shares in the company, but, like when, when I when I like, when I heard oh, that I was like, all right, it must be like the employees of the company. But then you mentioned this this lady that threw a fork through your table, and I'm like, wait, she doesn't work <laughs> for the company, and she's on the advisory board. So unpack that just a little bit. Like you, what exactly is an advisory board in in this sense, and who are these people? And I guess the third part is that why are they? Why, why do they care? Like, why are they even wanting to be part? What's the part incentive of to give you advice? Yep. Exactly. Great question. So it, it was right a very advice. unofficial. It was a very, yeah, who knows? Their advice might be terrible. Um, but no, it was very unofficial. My understanding is that a, a traditional advisory board typically has advisors shares, right? So you are getting some equity of the company and under a normal circumstance, that is the benefit. Um, again, whether or not that company issues a dividend or in the event of an exit, you then make a little money because you've got 2% advisor shares. I never had any of that, right? And basically what it was is once I, I got ignored by five people before the, the one marketing guy on my advisory board finally replied back to me. You know, like, I, I mean, I did, I did sales my last role in the company was, was outside sales. You have to have a thick skin. You have to be prepared to be ignored or uh, told to fuck off and all kinds of other things. So I would just find other business owners that I admired. And I'm not talking about Steve jobs, you know, I'm talking about local people that are actually accessible, you know, that you could potentially buy a cup of coffee and, uh, and pick their brains for, you know, an hour or, or an afternoon or whatever. So that's exactly what it was. I, I, true knowledge is knowing what you don't know, right? And I realized I'm really good at these things. I have absolutely no idea <laughs> what I'm doing with these things. And I can't afford right now somebody to do these things, right? So I need someone to explain this to me because I got to fake it until I can hire somebody to, to, to do these internally, right? So I would just call people. I would, uh, I would email people, you know, and say basic cold email. You know, my name's Corbin. I have this little furniture shop and, uh, I don't know too much about this, this, and this. You appear to excel in these issues. Any chance I could buy you a cup of coffee? My schedule's open. Happy to accommodate. 
you know, a lot of people flat out ignored it and other people wrote back and said, of course, happy to help. I mean, that's, that's the entire reason I started uh, my webpage. I have the very humble URL, CorbinClay.com. And there's a giant contact me section at the bottom because anyone listening, for God's sakes, email me. If I don't know the answer to your question, I'll tell you, and I can hopefully point you in the right direction, but I may very well know the answer. And it may very well help you out. And it may very well shave off three, four, five years worth of walking in the dark, knocking shit over uh, because you don't know the answer. And then finally through podcasts and YouTube and Google searches and, you know, talking to your brother who's in finance and all this other stuff, finally you come up with the answer. Um, but, but yeah, to answer your specific question, I would just reach out to them. I'd say this, this guy's a multi multimillionaire. And he excels in this specific category. I think that could benefit my company. I'll offer to buy him a cup of coffee. It was really that simple. And that was the incentive. It was a cup of coffee. I think the, you have to find the right person, obviously. Like, right. yeah, I think some people want to help. The mix to Starbucks. Precisely. Now, if, if you're just trying to get somebody that could be extremely valuable to your organization that isn't just wanting to help you, then you have to offer some type of financial incentive, generally financial, I'll build you a table or who knows what, right? But I didn't want to deal with those types of people. I mean, I, I, I not saying those types of people as if it's that, you know, necessarily like a pejorative, but, but I just thought I'm in no place to be offering additional things financially. And I'm really busy as it is. I'm not making any money. I don't know why. Who out there has made money in a business? Okay, this lady. Hey, her name's Jillian. Jillian, how do I make money in my company? And Jillian's super smart. She says, let's start from the beginning. And that then started this journey, right? You can't, there's not just, there's not just one answer. But, oh, you got to, uh, you know, make sure that your costs are this. And, I mean, you know, it's so circumstantial. It's, it's almost impossible to just have one answer, right? Build a product that people need might be the only like generalized answer, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be profitable. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to succeed. Execution's everything, right? So yeah, that, that, that's how it was. And like I said, I got ignored a lot. I got said, you know, I got told thanks, but no thanks a lot. And you got to lick your wounds and send out five more cold emails. But did you follow up with the same people or was it like that one and done and you took no. that wisdom? So you're able to circle back with the same people. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I, uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So I don't want to say that I was this, you know, annoying chihuahua nipping at your ankles, but you, you have to acknowledge that you are in fact inconveniencing these people, or at least it's a safe assumption that you're inconveniencing these people. So I would always bookend it with, I just want to say, I'm incredibly grateful for your help. Um, you have made a tangible improvement in my company and in my own, you know, personal, uh, well-being. I'd love to continue where we left off on the last conversation. You know, how does Thursday look for dinner? Um, uh, you know, cold email technique, have a hard ask in there. You know, how does Thursday at seven look for dinner at this restaurant? Right. Cause then, you know, it's, well, Thursday doesn't work. Friday does. Cool. Instead of just like, hey, can we meet up soon? Yeah, of course we can meet up soon. And then nothing really ever get, really gets locked down, right? So, so if anyone That's listening a, is planning on doing that. 
that's a really that's just a good piece of advice in general like to uh, you know the back and forth planning it's like if someone reaches out, yeah it's it's absolutely miserable and it's you, you your success rate is is <laughs> is you know basically constrained every time that it, there's an exchange where you're absolutely right yeah. in business in general for whatever it's yeah. like you go in it's you know you keep it simple and then a hard ask um just make sure to not feel entitled or come off as feeling entitled. No, like you don't like, like hey, you, you know, I deserve your time. Yeah. That's, you, you, you're, you should always be appreciative. Yeah. Sure. I delete that email in a second. Um, sure. But if somebody wrote me and said, hey, dude, sounds like you know what you're talking about. I'm having the same issues. In fact, I have a wood shop as well. I'm working around the clock. I got this employee. I don't think I can afford him. What the hell? But I'll, I'll talk to you on the phone for four hours, help you out. No problem. Again, what else am I doing? <laughs> so I, we, we want to get there. So you... What was, your, what was your goal with your business when you started it? Obviously, initially, it was to fill a need. But then once you got into it, what, what was your mindset like? When did it change? And when did it come clear? So I read a book called The E-Myth. And everyone out there should read it if you have a business that's a good book and it uh my specific that's when it changed and my specific goal was to choose what i did every day if i want to put the apron on go back and make some sawdust i get to do that uh bless you whoever just sneezed thanks um and uh if i want to put on a suit the last 18 months I was at Azor. I was wearing a suit most days doing outside sales. Felt like a frigging gangster. It was good fun. If I want to put on a suit, I'm going to go do that. Uh, or if I want to go play hockey at noon on a Tuesday, I'm going to go play hockey. That was my goal was to have that kind of autonomy to know that everything is shot, churning shot along. Uh, I can't play at noon. Playing hockey at noon. Hey man, let's chat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fly out to Colorado. Bring my gear. <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, and it, it sounds, you know, I remember listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos, reading this book, and, I'm, and in my head, I'm just thinking, fuck off, man. It's not that easy. Like, yeah, it's, uh, how convenient. You're talking about how easy it was, you know, here in hindsight. And I understand that sentiment. Everyone listening, I really do understand that sentiment. But it takes a while, and it takes some very careful, thoughtful planning. But... Johnny, I, I got excited, dude, when you when you lifted that chart up. I don't I don't care how haphazard it is. I don't care if it's fifteen colors or one color, or if it's got Johnny's CEO and the, I mean it doesn't matter. The fact that you're even writing it down, post that shit up on your wall. Look at that thing every day. You know what I mean? And and it's it's just a matter of you would not build a kitchen. You would not build a twenty five thousand dollar kitchen with this now precious, apparently white oak without a plan, without a friggin' set of plans. They Naughty are constantly referencing Naughty Alder. Hey, Naughty Alder. <laughs> uh, but yet that's exactly what we do with our businesses. Yep. We're all damn good craftsmen, damn good, you know, tradesmen, uh, plumbers, electricians. And then we just decide one day to start a business for whatever reason. And then we just kind of hope to figure it out. No, hope they think is not it, a like, strategy. Well, I mean, Nick, it wasn't hope. It was just that, like, I would joke it. We always used to joke back and forth. It's like, what's the numbers on that? 
when Nick would make decisions. He'd buy a fleet of sprinters and be like, like Tyler and I would text him like, dude, what the F is going on? <laughs> Not like you bought one van, he bought three. Then they get lettered. In my mind, I'm compounding all these prices. And I'd be like, so what's the, what's the breakdown? I don't know. But like Nick relied on talent. It's like, let's look at the hockey. A lot of people don't map out their like career in hockey. They go as far as their passion and their talent will take them. And I think a lot of people do the same thing in woodworking and this, there's an artist part of it. And it's like, I'm going to rely on my talent. I'm, I know I'm good at this. And they tell themselves that every day, it's just breaking into the whole business part of it and then letting go of stuff. That's why there's so many sole proprietors in this industry that literally still swing a hammer because that's what they do. And then, then they squeeze their nights into bookkeeping and all that because they don't trust anybody else. or they don't want anyone else to know their numbers because they're upside down and backwards. And it's, it's like, how do you do it where you're almost giving in to say, you know what, talent isn't enough. And that's scary for a lot of us because that's the only kind of power that they have in this industry, you know? It depends on what talent, right? If, um, I mean, really, it comes down to like, most of us get into it to, to make things, whether it's a house or maybe they're siders or roofers, that is their talent in bookkeeping and and doing the numbers and Excel and even sending emails is something they have to then acquire as, as a new learned kind of talent. No, that's exactly right. And it goes back to that, <clears throat> excuse me, it goes back to that original question of what do you want out of this? I'm not saying that every company needs to be Amazon, right? If what you want out of this is not having a boss and I just want to choose what projects I work on and, and, and or, because I just don't want to work for somebody, right? It could be as simple as that. And then if that's your goal, you might not need a fleet of 10 vans and a production manager and 15 project managers and an office manager and a showroom manager, right? If, 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 if your goal is to just, I don't want to work for this other person or any other person, I just want to be able to work on my own. Cool. If that's your goal, then friggin' double down on it and do it properly, right? And I feel like that, that we all really understand this as, as craftspeople. It's like, if you're going to make something, friggin' do it properly. How is that any different with your business? But the point is, doing your business properly starts from whatever your original goal is, right? I think that the biggest problem with craftspeople is that they're relying on their craft to make a living. And I, I think that the way that we get into it and the way that it naturally progresses is here's what I'm good at. Here's what I can charge money for. Um, and you're basically exchanging that time for money. And at that point you get into it and it's almost like you don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You're not able to afford to step back to try and figure out how to make a business actually work at that point. Um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of layers to that, but <clears throat> I think most of it is people, people getting, starting their own business because it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm maxed out. I'm capped at what I could make working for people working for someone else. I can put more hours in on my own. I can charge a little bit more on my own. And then once you get into it, it's like, Holy crap, I don't have time to take a step backwards and figure out what I need to do 
to afford this or to afford that or be able to hire this person or I can't afford an accountant this year because taxes crept up on me. And it's almost this vicious cycle where you're constantly just trying to keep your head above water. Yeah, and then the other side of it is like when things start to get tough, most people don't lunge into that that part of the business. They usually go back into their comfort zone, which is making sawdust or whatever. Or just, hey, I got to listen, I'm not making enough money. I got to work more. Yeah. It's not like I need to restructure my business or I, you know, it's almost, you never consider that, hey, maybe the way I'm doing things is not the best way for me to be making money. It's always just like, well, I, you know, I got to start working Saturdays or I got to work 10 hours a day on the job so that I got to pick up an extra job so I can make an extra five, 10 to pay for this that just died or this that we need. Um, instead of being like, Hey, how can I make more money by potentially working less? I completely understand the sentiment. Um, I disagree with it, but I, I, I understand where you guys are coming from. You disagree with it in regard to that's not the case or that's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think that that's the right thing to do for anyone. I just think that overall the trades, um, most people getting into the trades are getting in because, you know, they're capped out with what they can make and they have this ideal that they can, they can go make X amount more working for themselves. Oh, obviously, yeah. I mean, income potential is a, is a huge reason one starts a business, right? And it's like, I guess the way I look at it is we're all objective enough as craftspeople to say those, the miters on the casing keep popping. Why? You know, because we didn't back prime or we used the wrong adhesive. Maybe we switch over to that epoxy or the wood weld or whatever, right? But, but you know, if you want to be good at your craft, then you have a shred of objectivity to say, why are these glue ups cracking, right? We, this, is, this is not working. There's a problem here. We need to fix it. So it's not like it's this alien concept to do the same with your business. Yeah, but usually the problem so, is I feel like people don't know where no, usually what they happens don't. is they don't know those miters open at the same time that you're supposed to go home and do the next pay rack for that job. Yeah. And you're in the middle of fixing this colossal screw up. And then you go, this philosophy in your head goes, I'm not going to invoice while there's still an issue going on with the job. I'm going to wait until I solve this issue. Then your mind's completely caught up in this, this issue. And then you solve it. And now you're behind two and a half weeks on invoicing. And then now you're scrambling to get that done. And then your mind's not in your game for the carpentry end of it. So then you end up screwing something else up. So it's this never ending kind of loop of how do I cut the cord and like, I'll fix those miters in the morning, but I still have to get this invoice out. I mean, it, it's also, you, you think a company like Home Depot, right? They're, the price that they're charging is accounting for broken material, uh, theft, um, things that are getting returned, things that aren't accounted for. And like when you go to bid a job, John, Nick, how much are you putting in for like mistakes or things that you're having to redo it. Like, I don't think a lot of times that in our industry, we can put enough of an overhead 
to cover those mistakes and to cover redoing things. So that's where, especially when you're a smaller contractor, it's like, well, I'm just going to have to go put my time into that to fix that. It's not like, you know what, I'm doing a hundred case openings. I'm going to charge to go back and do 15% of them twice because I know that there's going to be an issue with them. And then in your mind you go, but I'm a professional, so I shouldn't have to charge to go back a couple of times. So you like, I looked, I had this conversation this weekend, like the iPhone, you know how much it costs to make this thing or the sneakers that I'm wearing? The markup on those things are astronomical and the markup that we charge that we get heckled on a lot of times in, in, in our meetings for cost budgets is minor compared to all these other objects that are out there. It, it's crazy that the amount of overhead and markup that's in these things. It's like overhead's like it's 300% on sneakers, whatever it is. But there's plenty of margin there. They could lose an entire container in the ocean on the way over here and not bat an eye on it. Obviously, they're going to try and correct that. But it's, it's like that they can absorb that. Because people are willing to pay yes. $1,000 for this. But like they're not willing to pay $1,000 for, you know, if it's something that you're – all right, I'm going to price out a built-in. It's $10,000. Well, can we spend half of that? Um, and go to I, Ikea. It's, it's tough. Um, and I don't, th I don't think that that's the right approach. I think that it's deeply rooted and deeply ingrained within our industry and within how people are starting businesses within our industry and with no professional business background, with no professional business knowledge. And I don't think that, the, you know, who are you going to for advice? The guy who has the same structured business around the corner, who's going to tell you like charge 10 bucks more an hour, which isn't helping at all. You know, it's more than that. There's, there's more to it than just what you're charging. Um, I, I think that there's so many things involved in this and it's, it's much deeper than that. It's tough to, uh, I think, and it's, it's tough to kind of impact people on a larger scale than what we do. Um, but I think that the, what kind of strikes me and what makes a big impact with me, Clay, is like what you said, you know, you're not going to go start any project without having a plan in place, but then you're going to start a business without having any plan in place. You know, like you don't, you don't do any, I don't get up and just walk out of the door with, nothing in plan, nothing, you know, nothing set out for the day for myself. But then, you know, when I'm 23, I'm going to start a business and be like, Hey, I don't have any work on my plate. I don't know how I'm going to market myself. I don't know what I'm going to charge. I don't know what overhead is. I don't know what profit is, but you're just like, Hey, screw it. You know, I'll make this work. And then you just end up working to try and make it work. Right. And, uh, that's exactly what I did early on, you know, it was miserable. You know, it's crazy. I was on my son the other day and you would never, okay, I'm going to take it to a total different level degree. You would never attempt a Lego without the direction package. Like they, <laughs> you just like, there's something about that kind of structure is that like, I'll buy a Lego. Imagine if you just lost the entire instruction packet. You'd be like, I'm not even going to get into this. There's just no way I'm going to get to it. So it's very similar to that is like, Hunter's like, well, it's like building a house. I'm like, I don't know, man. I wish the directions were as clear for me building a house that they are <laughs> in the Legos yeah. because it would make my life easier and make my business more profitable. 
it, it's we're Advil for a lot of the issues that happen on a project. We're supposed to make them go away. And but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna kick you a little bit here because isn't that taking the creativity out of putting that Lego set together? Is following the directions? Isn't that what you? Isn't that why you don't want to pre-do everything when you build a house? You want the creativity putting it together. Well, I think it's you're probably right on that fact. But even when I was big building hockey stick furniture, I'd still it made my life. I could go about it which is cutting lengths and making, basing it off of feel. Mm-hmm. And I love that. But then it got to a point where like, I was, I was, I was thinking of what was happening at the moment and not thinking about what the end result was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so then it changed how I did just the early stages of that, where there's so many components that are missing that, that are out of my control with the Lego that I'm not trying to invent something there. Like I would, I, I said to my son, I go, this is your million dollar idea is if you can take something that you can scan if you can scan anything like my laptop, then like they have these little pixel things that they color in where like number 28, they color it and it creates this whole yeah. montage of a photo. And I'm like, you can take that. I can take a picture of you, Nick, and it'll turn it into this thing. And they fill in all these different numbers. It's like color by numbers, but it's digital. I'm like, why can't you scan something like scan my office? And, and then it then translate into how many Lego pieces you need of this, this, and this. I'm like, that would be amazing. Like why uh, you'd be like, we've talked about it in depth where you'd probably be sued by Lego, but it was more of like, how cool would it be to be able to create? That's where the creative part comes in, Nick. But on that aspect is it's, it's not pre-built, but you're using pre-built parts Mm -hmm. to create what it is because that's the standard of construction on that kind of level. You get me? If I was making my own parts to make that, that'd be cool. But you know, I don't, to answer your question, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go down that this this particular conversation because I feel like we could go off on this for hours about the relationship to it. But I think it's more important to relate it back to Corbin. You're talking about business plan and things like that, and how in the beginning it was it was hell. It, it sucked. It you didn't have this plan. You didn't. You weren't. You weren't working towards this end result. And it was later in your career that you did have this, this kind of mindset of like, I need the plan for the future. I mean, it wasn't just one day I woke up and had this epiphany and no, dream. Of not. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, it's, I was absolutely convinced I couldn't cope an inside miter the first time I did it. Absolutely convinced this is not going to work for me. I might want to reevaluate my decision in woodworking. Likewise, I was absolutely convinced that I, would never understand a PNL. Absolutely freaking convinced. Mm-hmm. And I can explain a PNL to an eight year old now. Mm-hmm. It's no different, right? These are all learned techniques. No one, no one is born a natural woodworker, <laughs> right? Um, it's not like football to where if you're six, eight, 300 pounds, they can run a, you know, four, two forty. like you have this genetic predisposition to being good at your job. All of our techniques are learned. It's the exact same with business. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't drive that point home. You know, it's, it, there's this sentiment um, that it's, it's, just, it's just too complicated. Um, it's, it's too cumbersome. It's too scary. I don't know anything about it. Uh, there's absolutely no way out, you know, and I can relate to that. I've, uh, I've sat in that storm a lot, you know, in the early days of the company until you 
realize that your coping saw is dog shit. You got to go buy a good coping saw. Hey, your blade is too loose. And then you ask somebody who knows how to cope. And they say, no, 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 speed it up. Or, yeah, there you go. Speed it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're going to use but, that uh, for the, the promo. <laughs> please do. Yeah. <laughs> Corbin's going to talk technique. Uh, but, but you know what I mean? You, you acknowledge you don't know what the hell you're doing. And then you ask somebody for help. Or you start to research yourself, right? Watch a YouTube video on how to cope a frigging inside miter properly. I guess not a miter at that point. Um, we would always back miter, but anyway, you understand what I mean? And, and, and like I said, I, I would be I would be remiss if I didn't really drive home the fact that as intimidating it is, as a, as as helpless as you might feel. And like, this is never going to end. I can't just start saying no to things so I could then work on my specialty. Like that's so counterintuitive, right? It's like, no, I need money. I need to say yes to every single project out there, but there's actually a way of doing that. And it's, it's, you know, much more complicated than, you know, 30 minutes within a three hour podcast, but there's in fact a way of doing it and, 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 and we can do it. But we just need to check these several boxes. And then before you know it, it's done. And you're clocking out after eight hours. And you've got three months worth of work. And your bills are paid. You know? But, but it all comes back to making some type of plan, creating standards around that plan, and then slowly filling each individual one of those, those boxes. Nick, you, it sounds like you've done exactly this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're incredibly quiet and calm throughout this part of the conversation because it sounds like, yeah, no, I've done exactly that. And it turns out it's not as hard. I think that there's, a, there's also a big jump from, it's almost like, where's that direction coming from, right? Because it's very easy to say my goal is to have, you know, be able to dip off at lunchtime to go play hockey I want to be able to do what I want to do if I want to wear a suit one day. But then I think that it's, it's almost, <clears throat> what's that direction? Where's your first move? Where are you looking to go? How do I get there? Because having the goal in mind and having, having the, the end goal of the plan in place now filling out and connecting all of the, it's not even just connecting those dots at that point. It's developing those dots and those points uh, and developing that plan. And again, it, it's going to be an organic growth and organic plan that you're kind of cultivating there. It's not like you're, you're coming up with plan day one and now all you get to do is just go from A to B to C and <laughs> you're going to be there. But I think that it's starting that first step and then figuring out the direction that you need to be and, and what's the critical path to success there is very difficult for people who aren't business-minded and who got into this you know for the sake of the craft and because this was just the way that they thought they were going to be able to make money yeah no it's incredibly difficult um but but so is your trade you know what i mean yeah and and uh the thing that the thing that coming up with a plan does i remember my very first employee patrick i remember articulating to him and I, I probably should not have hired Patrick because about two months in, two and a half months in, I couldn't afford his paycheck. And I'd have a sit down with him 
to say, dude, I'm crying, by the way. Not like sobbing, but, you know, I felt like I let my dude down. He shows up every day on time. And I didn't do my job in making sure he has a paycheck. So I just told him, like, I I don't have money for your paycheck, my man. And, uh, you know, you can do whatever you feels appropriate. If you want to tell me fuck off and find a new job, I, I would tell me to fuck off. Um, but as I articulated on your very first day we met on your interview, this is what we're here to do. We are here to reclaim as much wood as possible from these dead forests. We're here to create as many jobs as possible from this negative situation. And if those two things work and, and our pricing is, is correct and our little machine works to where our, you know, our uh, overhead recovery is correct and our profit is correct. Then the third is we all can make a little money off that. That's why I started that. That is what I have worked every day to do and will continue to work every day to do. If you want to bounce, I totally get it. But if you want to stay on board, rest assured, I'll keep busting my ass to hold up my end of the bargain. You are doing that as well. Didn't bad an eye said, I'll be here tomorrow. No problem. And that's a testament to Patrick's character, obviously, but it's also a testament to having a borderline delusional <laughs> concept of what your business is in your head, even though you're nowhere freaking close to it. Planning for that vision, articulating that to yourself, your peers, your employees, your customers, and then again, this is a much more complicated you know, thing because it's so circumstantial to each individual business, manufacturing versus site work like you guys do, you know, on and on and on. It's, it's, it's incredibly contextual. But when you start letting that plan inform every single decision of yours, then it does in fact have this way of forcing you and your business to adhere to that plan because Say you start saying no to that complex work. There was a veneer table we did. We're not a friggin' veneer shop. We said yes to it. I knew we shouldn't have said yes to it. All of my worst projects where I absolutely lost my ass, the second I said yes, I thought I should not have done that. I should have said no. But the best decision I ever made was starting to say no. Because what you don't realize is Every single time we delivered a piece of furniture to a customer, they were ready to order another one. So instead of saying yes to this veneer project, why didn't I take the entire next day and email every single customer I'd ever delivered a piece of furniture to, to say, I hope you're loving your dining table. I remember you mentioning that vanity you wanted to do. We just had a cancellation now have an opening in our production schedule. What say you we'd, we'd love to, to do some more work for you. Right. So once you identify that specialty and say, this is what we do and this is what we do well, and this is what we're going to continue to, to focus on. There's this idea that, well, we can't just say no, like if we're lucky enough for a project to fall on our lap, we got to freaking say yes, because I got payroll due next week and my man hasn't been paid in you know, two payrolls. But like that example I just gave about the cold emails, you know, and it's different for everybody, but but there is, in fact, a way of saying no while somehow also increasing your top line. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I what what kind of sticks out to me in that so you're obviously taking risks um in this situation and for me what kind of strikes me is that you hired an employee when you couldn't really afford an employee and what was the reason for doing so like did you just need the manpower because i feel like that first employee for everyone is such a huge <laughs> leap right and like especially yeah. with what we do it's like you can't afford anyone you can't afford anyone and then finally it's just like i got to hire somebody and then you find out how to make it work but it's like for me to hire somebody that then I couldn't make payroll for him scares the living hell out of me. And like, yep. how do you go and hire somebody without having a hundred percent assurance that you're going to be able to support them because like they're investing in you and they're not coming for a short term job. No, it's scary, man. Those first couple are scary. Um, you know, we had two different circumstances to where we'd have God, these hotels we would do they take six months to make a decision. You know what I mean? So, so we had structured our year's production schedule. Um, but then lo and behold, that project got pushed back six months to where now we have three hotels at the same time in the shop with five people. All right. Friggin' hire. We've got plenty of money in the bank. Just start hiring because again, this shop is run on systems, not necessarily technique. There's obviously a lot of technique involved, but you know, a lot of it was very entry level because we invested in technology. So scale up quickly, right? We have the money in the bank. Let's do it. That's one situation that obviously makes it a pretty easy decision when it's time to hire somebody. The other one, yeah, it's scary and it's a giant risk. Um, I communicated that to Pat right up front. Um, I said, you know, I, I don't know if you will always have a job here because I really don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know, at the time. But I'm willing to train you to be a woodworker. And I think we could have a lot of fun here and do some projects together. What say you, right? You just be completely open and transparent with it. Um, Did you ever ask Patrick in hindsight why he ended up taking the job with you? Because that doesn't seem like a, a very amazing job <laughs> opportunity when you're going in the first, when you're on the interview and the guy says, I don't know if I'm always going to have a job for you. Yep. No, my, uh, the, the guy, um, his name's David that hired me for my apprenticeship said that verbatim to me in the project. And that's where I, that's, or in the uh, interview. And that's where I got that from. Cause I thought, I thought this guy's leveling with me, which means he at the very least respects me to shoot me straight. And I thought I want to make people I interview feel the way this guy's making me feel. It's funny. Um, so no, Pat and I are still good buddies. What's that? I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off. It's funny. I think about there was a few hires I made, like Ken, for example, was one where it was like, it was a new division. We were going to start building cabinetry. And, and I said the same thing. I'm like, I don't know if I'm always going to have cabinetry work for you. And, you know, thank, thankfully that, was never true. It was, you know, I flood, it was like a, the floodgates opened up when he, he was in, but there was a few guys that I had hired and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if it will always, like I'll always have this work for you. So we'll just kind of keep you like bounce you around and keep you busy. And it's, it's funny how you, 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 I never thought of it as like leveling with them. I just was like, listen, I I'm, I'm being honest with you. And if you don't want to take the risk, don't, don't take the risk. But this is my, you know, same thing. It's like, this is my plan. 
And if you yeah. believe in it, you know, I believe in it. So let's go. You know, one, one thing that my production manager and I would do in interviews, especially with entry level apprenticeship woodworkers, we do an apprenticeship every summer is, you know, we'd get dozens of people applying for this, um, for this apprenticeship. We were real big on Instagram. People moved to Denver cause Denver rocks. And, you know, we had a lot of people who wanted to get into woodworking. The, the only thing we would talk about in those interviews is how miserable production woodworking is. Boys, it's going to be hundred degrees back there. You got to take those 500 boards and feed them through that planer, eat lunch, flip them over, feed them through again. And then you'd have guys that go, Oh, that's, Okay, that's that's neat. You're out. But then you'd have the guys that go, yeah, okay. If that's what needs to be done, of course, I want to learn. You don't get to be executive chef day one. You got to go chop potatoes in the back for six months. And then maybe we'll let you come out and dress salads. Then you're going to fuck those up. You're back to chopping potatoes. I want the guy that's willing to chop potatoes because he's not chopping potatoes. He's working on his knife skills. He's understanding the difference between dice and chop. You know, it's, it's not just like we did um, uh, hundreds of thousands of pieces for this company called Artifact Uprising. We basically made all their, their uh, wood pieces. So like there's little blocks of wood with a groove in it. They put pictures in, right? But huge volume. And I would tell my guys, I understand that this is mind-numbingly boring. You just running a slider all day long for three weeks but you need to be listening to what that slider is telling you. We'd have guys put too much pressure on it to where every time it go through, it'd go near at the end because they're putting too much pressure on the saw blade. So my production manager and myself would go out there and say, when we're doing that miter on that walnut countertop, and this thing has to be absolutely perfect with no tear out, you can't hear that, right? So you need to be using this monotony to be listening to the machines talking to you, to be seeing what it smells like when it cuts. They said Anthony Bourdain could tell the, the temperature of a steak from the sound of the sizzle. And that's what I would tell them. I know this is monotonous, but it's monotonous if you choose for it to be monotonous, or you could realize how cool this is, that you're getting to log thousands of hours of doing this one thing so you could absolutely master it. You know, it's all about framing and uh and and contextualizing it nick to your point you sold me i mean when do i start uh be bored after houses. like 35 minutes no i crush it an extra hour out of like <laughs> it's like opening a package and be like what's the what's the uh it's four hours is what they say the advised time to put this together i'm like i got this in two that's what i'm saying so whatever you give me <laughs> i'll crush it move on i'm more enamored by the fact that he could tell what temperature the steak was by the sizzle I'm sitting there with a digital thermometer poking the thing 17 times. Fine. I got I to gotta cook more steak. But it's, it's like all of us. It's <laughs> like if you don't know this environment. Right. But, but you're right. It's, it's, it's not just – I remember we joked about the intern I had where he uh, – I wanted him just to watch the stair guys. And he found himself he wanted to take on baseboard in a closet, whatever it was. It's like you missed the fact that, is that – it starts by being on that site sweeping floors because you know, you hear the terms. They're not new to you when they actually are fired at you to do something. You hear everything that's going on. You hear the tempo, the speed, how everything works. When something falls, like I was on a job site uh, last week and, and I went down a ladder and you look around, is the ladder stable? It, what's going, it just, you don't take anything for granted. It's like, a, you ever see me walk a house, 
Like I never lean up against the railing. I always give a little hip check first. Like you just always want to know what's going on, but that doesn't happen day one. And if, you, if you're not willing to take advantage of just being in that environment and then taking it all and absorbing it and then figuring out how to navigate it, that's how it should be done. And I love that, that whole pep talk. I might just use that tomorrow. I'm not going to hire anybody. Guys, there's, no, I mean, there's, there's an honor to what we do and it should be freaking taken seriously. You know what I mean? Especially when you start involving other people's money. And if you communicate that to your team to say, no, you don't get to use that machine yet. You haven't earned it, but here's exactly how you can earn it. Awesome. And now you got a guy marching down that path saying, not only my dad, uh, every time he'd start a new job, he'd say, what's the typical, uh, Johnny, just like you, he'd say, what's the typical, you know, onboarding time for an employee? And they'd say, oh, uh, three months. And he's like, cool, I'll do it in half. Yep. Because fuck you, I'll do it in half. You know what I mean? And it was just like, the, what kind of attitude is that? That's freaking awesome. But, but if you find those types of people to, to work with you in the vision that you have for your business. And, and let me give a very important disclaimer. I am terrible at hiring people. You will never see a video of me talking about how to build a team because I am objectively bad at it, which is one of the reasons I sold the company. Um, we had a lot of turnover and I am a terrible manager. I'm very impatient. I'm very impulsive. I have all the things that make a bad manager, a bad manager. Uh, and fortunately, I realized that, which is one of the reasons we hired a production manager and hired an office manager and this and that. But, but there are ways, even for me, who's so bad at it, to find good people. Like I was saying about only talking about the, the worst parts of the job. And then you get people that are still leaning in and you say, okay, I think we'll do all right here. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not this impossible code to crack. It's amazing to me how many times you were able to recognize something. Like, whether it's a flaw, whether it's like, I'm reading, I'm writing down all these things. Like you were able to create a business, obviously while you were doing something else, figure out how to get, like, we, we just breezed over. Like, how do you even, like, did you just start cutting down, you know, dead trees in your backyard and then ask the neighbor for their <laughs> trees and then ask the neighbor of their neighbor, or did you start just stealing trees from the national park? Like we didn't talk about that, but that all took like, it all took kind of time to do yes. and navigate and then being able to come up with a business plan, you know, get a shop up and running, hire some people, then, then be able to pull far enough away to go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to call people and create a little advisor board. And then I'm going to also talk to legislature to see if I can get, you know, to, to see if these will be lead points. Cause this will work with this. We haven't touched on how you even got these hotel gigs or <laughs> other brands that buy, you know, 8,000 pieces of product that hold up pictures like to do all that people just struggle building a shop out yep and you've been able to do all that and then the flip side of that is then you sold it and now you're <laughs> you started the podcast with me going you're retired and i'm like all right so do i take the headphones off now and walk out <laughs> or do i stick around i mean the <laughs> fact that you were obvious the i guess the fact that the pine was coming from within the United States was a huge perk to be able to make this stuff in the United States. But 
I would say the percentage of companies who are making stuff like that, you know, it's very few and far between to be doing production style work within the United States as well. As far as furniture, um, anything, everything. Yeah. I mean, China, especially wood, like most of that stuff's made overseas at this point on any sort of scale. Like I think that it's a lot of the stuff that's made within the country, um, especially, I mean, most of it's not sustainable from within the country, but it's a uh, small boutique type of things. It's not like we're going to be able to scale and source enough stuff to deliver this amount and in, in this amount of time. Usually that's all done overseas. Yeah, but people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it, right? Well, Johnny at Vintage Builders, are you selling somebody a remodeled kitchen or are you selling them quality are you selling them integrity amazon doesn't sell consumer goods they sell convenience apple doesn't sell electronics they sell a reverence they sell this contrarian mindset think different is their friggin' logo or slogan at azor we didn't sell furniture we sold the ability to be part of this solution that is bumming everyone in this region out. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, I'm very proud of what I built, but I can't take that much credit for it because, you know, I was lucky enough to, to find a need and to structure it properly, but I would just encourage everybody to think of, Think of what problem for the customer you're solving, right? Think of what, think of what product you're actually selling as opposed to just the kitchen remodel. Maybe you're just selling punctuality. Every other trade on this project showed up late and you're the only one on time. Thank you for respecting me and my schedule. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be that guy. Um, Nope. I, I wish I wish I was the punctual one, but you know, you know what I mean though? Good things take time. Uh, no, I'm with you. It's just, I just would love to know. It's like, I want to hear the, this stupid, like I meditate every morning so I can start doing that. Just give me the simple thing that gave you the ability. Now you sound like, now you sound like everyone else. What's the, what's the <laughs> secret? No, but it's like, seriously, like, I, I, Okay, a lot of people have see the need for something and go, that's cool. All those trees are there. I want to find something. But then they usually fall flat because they, they can't build a cool product that people will buy or they can't put the shop together. And it, I've always used it now. I love business plans. Like I love this stuff because I've always <laughs> said to people, if you want to run to like a friend's house and you start running through the woods to get to that person's house, it, you won't know how to get there. But if you were to like, let me get like Google Maps and look at it, you know what? You'll go. And if you want to then, you know, hit a detour and do that, you'll be able to get back on track. It, it, where ways is eliminate that before you used to have map books. And, but now it's like, imagine going somewhere without a map. Like there's no way you're going to get there. And if you do, something's going to, you're going to have to sacrifice something, whether it's your time, whether it's your money, whether it's the product, whatever it is. It's like clients that come to me now and go, Hey, someone called me today. And like, they don't have a design. I go, you got, you got to start, you got to start there because, and, but before we, we just laughed, but before 15 years ago, I absolutely be like, yeah, let me swing by. I'll sketch something up. I'll do it on the spot and not get paid. And I thought that was the way to do it. 
But now yeah. it's like, no, that's crazy. That's, I, I wasn't like arrogant and be like, what are you calling me for? It was more like, guys, you can't start this process without a plan. And I know yep. you don't know that. Like my wife and I talk about all the time because she works with some other designers and they're getting calls all the time about what do I do for this? And I want to spend 15 grand. And they're like, well, that's the design fee. And I'm like, guess what? They don't know. And my wife and I are sitting at the kitchen table like late night talking and I'm like, you need to educate them. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, they just don't know. You can't just get them off the phone. I'm like, they need to buy into your design, whether it's 10 grand right now or 15 grand, buy that. Then they can go shop it to whatever it is, Angie's List contractors, stuff like that. You can't go to, I know it's popular. You can't, you shouldn't be able to go to those places, those websites and find contractors without having spent five to 15 grand on a design to show someone, hey, color in this color by numbers, okay? It's like giving someone that picture and not giving the numbers on it. Like I have this room, I want it to look like something in my head that you don't know, and then give me a ballpark and you wonder why it's a recipe for disaster. Like they should hire this person right now, even if they can't afford it, now you've learned that, hey, I'm gonna spend 10 grand on this design, now I have to save up for the next three years to hire anyone I want because now someone will oversee it for me, not just the GC. Sorry, I went down right it. No, but you just you just fixed that problem. Just now, you fixed that problem. We Our superpower as experts is to predict the future for people. Now, there are two different ways of doing it, right? You could say, hey, fuckface, you're not even close to this. Come back with the real problem, click. Or there's a way to say, love where your head's at. This kitchen's going to be gorgeous. We found in the past that it's best to incorporate a professional kitchen designer because they know exactly how much landing area should be on either side of the stove, you know, blah, 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 blah. We work with this person often. Why don't you chat with them? What's your budget, by the way? 15K. Okay. The cheapest remodel we've ever done. You've seen our work. You've been on our webpage. The cheapest kitchen remodel we've ever done is 35,000. So we might want to reevaluate the budget. And if you can't do it now, that's totally fine because we'll still be here in two years when you are ready. You see what I mean? And people, exactly. It's outside of my wife, exactly the same but, thing. But it's just like, do that. I mean, you yeah. just, you just, but you know what's the crazy. This is another thing I thought about <laughs> this weekend. I did a lot of thinking this weekend was that it's easy for us from outside to solve these problems. It's, it's ridiculous to me when I jump on the phone with somebody and like, well, I do this. It's like, well, that's wrong. Like, like that. But yet, I will run around all week and at the end of the week be like, fuck, what is my problem? And it's like, I hate the fact that I just need. So my whole point that I questioned was what was elevating you while you were building all this up to be able to still have the hindsight to stop and be able to correct these errors before you turn the fuck face guy into a nightmare <laughs> and, and killed that company. Um, because I was miserable because I was broke, because I was working around the clock. You know, I realized this isn't working. How many glue ups are you going to do where the, the seams are popping until you finally stop and say, this is not friggin' working. You know what I mean? I mean, it's as simple as that. It's, 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 it's acknowledging there's this concept called bold humility to where it's 
grab what you're good at and own it, right? Everybody in this conversation is really good at something. But just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're good at the other things. So you have to acknowledge what you suck at. And I hate the phrase like surround yourself with best people. It's like, well, what if you can't friggin' afford those people, you know? Um, and, and it's just kind of this like, it's just kind of watered down of like, oh, to build a good organization, you just need to have customers, be profitable, build a good team. You're like, yeah, that's great. But how? It's midnight. I got to deliver this piece tomorrow morning. I'm YouTubing how to do bent laminations. Uh, and turns out I've got the wrong adhesive anyway, so it's going to pop in six months. And I got to, you know, it's, it's all way more complicated than, than just saying, oh, create a plan execute the plan, be profitable, sell your company, retire at 38. Like, obviously that's, that's, uh, that's not it. I mean, we're talking about 10 years of lessons here, right? But when you, when you just acknowledge, which I would safely assume we all do as craftspeople, this is not friggin' working. These shark bites are leaking over and over and over again. And again, SharkBite, don't sue me. I don't know about your company. They're, they're a sponsor. My whole house is filled with I was going to say, have you been listening <laughs> to John's uh, plumbing updates? <laughs> no, I just, just, you know what I mean? But just to say, like, what the hell? This is not friggin' working. What, are you just going to keep doing it? No. You're going to stop and you're going to evaluate something. What is leaking? It's not the pecs. It's not the fixture. It's the fitting. Okay, we need to reevaluate this specific fitting. How is that any different than your pricing structure? How is that any different than the time with which you respond to customers when they, or potential customers when they reach out to you? Why aren't I winning any estimates? Are my prices too high? Am I, uh, am I not being accommodating? Am I not advocating on their behalf? Again, these are the experiments that we can run in a very agile business. We're not Chevrolet. We didn't sign up for $250 million worth of ads. And then day three, they're dog shit, but we just have to stick with it because, you know, we've signed all these contracts with CNBC and everybody else. No, we can be agile. We can say, this is not friggin' working. And if I don't know how to fix it, I need to ask somebody that, it, that, that does know how to fix it. I mean, that's, that's the best answer I can give, John. I like it. I dig it. So look, Let's get to when you sold the company and, and, and let's start with why you sold the company because you touched on it in the beginning of the podcast and you just touched on it again about, you know, not being a good manager. So you built this company to, you know, from yourself building nightstands to let's really quickly touch on how big the company was. And then let's get into why you sold yeah, so we were doing seven figures top line, putting three figures or six figures rather to the bottom line consistently the last, I'd say, three years. Um, I mean, getting there sucked, right? But, you know, I was hemorrhaging employees and I didn't know why. And my production manager and I went out uh, for dinner one night and he basically just said, you're a dick. Like, I mean, you're just kind of a dick. And I know that I, you know, might not be the most uh, you know, soft around the edges person, but I just, I was really surprised. I was just like, really? And he was like, yeah, man. Like, you, you know, you can't, you can't say those kinds of things to people. And I'm just like, but no, but like specifically what? Dude, I never cursed at work. I never called anybody names. I mean, I'm not Gordon Ramsay back there. I mean, I was genuinely 
like dumbfounded that that was the feedback from my my one manager. And, you know, he's just kind of like, yeah, nobody really wants to, wants to work here much longer. And I said, well, that's, that's not cool. Like that hurts, you know, cause I thought I was doing a good job of it. Um, but also I can understand where they are. I mean, I'm not allowed to say bullshit. That's not a problem because it has nothing to do with me. If that's how they feel, then that's how they feel. And I need to acknowledge it. And I didn't think that one, I was capable of making that change as quickly as it needed to be made Two. Um, well, so that was obviously a big one, right? Not to just like move on quickly to two. Like that, that was a, that was a big smack in the face and kudos to my production manager, Neil, for saying that. Um, cause I had no idea cause customers love me. You know yeah, what I mean? Neil I, I was out doing the next day. Yeah. Hey Neil, <laughs> if you're listening, hope you're still unemployed. No, Neil's a, Neil's a good dude. Uh, he, he and I still keep in touch, but I just, it caught me so off guard. And I'm usually pretty aware of my surroundings. It caught me so off guard. I thought this is a very big problem that I've got that I don't know if I'll be able to fix in the meantime. Two, the fix to that would be potentially hiring a COO to where I'm completely pulled out of the day-to-day business. I read uh, Yvonne Schoenard, founder of Patagonia. I read his book, People Surf, I think it's called. And I'm reading this and I'm just like, man, fuck this guy. Like, fuck this guy. His whole thing is MBA, management by absence, to where he's like, hey, I'm fishing in the uh, uh, Yellowstone for six months. Don't call. And I thought, that's all fine and dandy. I don't want to work for someone like that. So if I hire a COO to where I, the owner, am not to be ever called, I don't want to work for someone like that. Why would anybody else? And then thirdly, I felt I had achieved what I'd set out to do with the beetle kill. We had, we had established this creative solution before million acres of dead pine trees. we got a bunch of happy customers. we got a bunch of reclaimed wood. My second goal of getting, you know, being able to choose what I did every day was boring. You know, I, I, it's like the dog finally caught the car. Now what, <laughs> you know, like the chase is the exciting part. Um, so then I, uh, I tried to sell the company a couple of years before and I did a valuation with the, uh, it was some uh, public service. I want to say it was like the uh, chamber of commerce or some shit. And this is before we were making any real money and I wasn't paying myself anything. I paid myself 12 K for three years, I think, which is under the poverty line, by the way. Um, and he was saying, you know, we're doing the, we're doing the balance sheet. And he's like, well, what's your, uh, what's your bottom line for the last, you know, three years trailing 36. And I was like, well, we made 40 grand this year, 55 the next year, and then 70 the next year, bottom line, everything's done. That, that was profit. And I was all proud of myself, you know, cause we made $70,000 and he goes, cool. What'd you pay yourself? And I said, Oh, I don't know. Let's look here. Uh, $12,418. He says, okay, what would it cost you to hire you? within your organization, someone with your skill set and background. And I said, probably minimum 80,000, if not a hundred. And he goes, okay, your company's worth nothing. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he said, your company's worth nothing because if you take you out of it, then you would have to spend that 70,000 profit 
on an, on a, you know, production manager or, you know, DO or whatever. So then you would have made zero money that year. So your company is worth nothing. <laughs> well, this guy's a bit of an asshole, isn't he? <laughs> but I just remember thinking like, man, that, that sucks. I, you know, again, it was just all these tidal waves of me realizing I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then acknowledging that and then trying to figure out what to do next, right? Okay, what makes a business valuable? Bottom line, not assets necessarily. Again, this is all, again, very circumstantial. How much income is this business generating every year for me to use discretionarily, discretionarily as the owner? That's what makes a business profitable or a business uh, attractive to a potential buyer. Okay, cool. If I want to sell this company, then that's what I'm going to spend the next one, two, three, five years doing because that's the goal and that's what we are going to use to inform every decision. So how much did you sell it for? That's what we all want to ask. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 a gentleman never tells. Uh, so say, uh, that was how many years before you sold? This was four years before I sold the company. So then you turned things around relatively quickly. Well, you this think guy, that you were like on that trajectory already, or you put things into place that really changed things that dramatically? Yes. <clears throat> Which I mean, one? I think <laughs> no, both. No, so so I, I think here's a perfect example. The biggest project we ever had at the company was this hotel down in Colorado Springs, right? They reached out to us out of nowhere because they saw uh, Beetle Kill and they really wanted to use Beetle Kill in their Colorado project. It was a, a developer out of California, but they, you know, obviously like marketing and branding and shit, they're like Beetle Kill environment. Cool. This is the company. Our brand and photography were gorgeous compared to the other handful of people in town doing Beetle Kill. We smushed all them just with our image. Um, so, so we were taken seriously right off the bat. I had previously just launched an entire commercial section to say, here's all the high volume contract work we've done in the past. So anyway, they called up and said, Hey, we want to do this hotel three month lead time, all beetle kill 138 keys right off the bat, because I knew what I was doing. I said, there's absolutely no way we can do 138 rooms full of furniture out of beetle kill pine. We were getting into the mud seasons where the loggers can't get up there. Um, you know, there's just all these issues with it showing up wet. Sometimes it's 30% moisture. Other times it's 5% moisture. There's absolutely no way, excuse me, that we'll be able to produce this in time. Now, five years earlier, I may have just hung up the phone, but that, hap that particular conversation, I said, however, there's this whole group of wood that the industry has referred to as rustic that we have all deemed too ugly to use in furniture, be it, you know, the, um, the uh, sapwood and walnut, knots in walnut, right? I, th I think it's something like only 10% of, of domestic walnut is actually used, you know, for the A1 um, sheet goods and the, uh, I forget the, the hardwood grading. But anyway, I said, however, there's this, you know, rustic oak, rustic, basically any defect bigger than that of a dime renders the entire piece of wood unusable for high-end furniture or high-end cabinetry. We think that's horseshit. So while we can't use beetle kill for your project, 
there's still this other huge problem in the industry that you could help participate in a pretty creative solution for what say you and they go fucking cool. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> you know, five years ago, I don't know if I would have said that. I, I, I may have just said, ah, you know, beetle kill is too hard to do. Sorry. We can't help. And they go, okay, what a bummer. See you later. And they, you know, order from uh, somebody overseas or something. So I think that certainly helped, you know, learning, you know, when you hang up the phone and I'll probably do this the rest of the night and the rest of the week on this podcast, like, God, why did I say that? Why didn't I bring up this anecdote? Why didn't I say this? I'm sure we've all done that before in talking to a customer. You know what I mean? Maybe a deal falls through because you guys, you know, you get, say you're a hundred K off and it's like, we could have figured out where to save that hundred. Do you need this fixture? Do you like need soft clothes everywhere? What's that? Sorry. How about like 84 K off? Oh, is, did I hit a nerve? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, you know what I mean? Right. Um, I do it every day. If I go to a meeting and I'm with one of my guys, whether it's a client meeting, whether it's a subcontractor and, and whatever the result is, whatever the communication is, I'll ask whoever was with me on my team and go, what do you think? You know, what would you have changed in that conversation? What would you have done differently or whatever it is? I used to do it with Benny all the time. Now I'm not with Benny, you know, as much. So it's like whoever is with me in that meeting or if it's on a Zoom, that's usually the first thing that comes out of my mouth is like, what would you have changed? A, oh, it gives yeah. me insight into what their head's at. But B, I don't want to have that situation that you had with your, you know, your shop guy. You're an asshole. Yeah. Because I feel yeah. like all day I'm holding back the asshole to be the nice guy. And maybe sometimes <laughs> they're bleeding into each other and I'm just not <laughs> catching any wind of it. Dude, I thought I was holding back and then I got called an asshole. I just said, right? man, this, okay. Did you I'm get a second opinion? <laughs> I feel like you could get a second opinion on that. You yeah, know, so I don't know, man. So in my defense, we did do anonymous reviews one year. You did a uh, we did, yeah. Well, it wasn't like a like a drafted survey, but we did anonymous reviews. And it was about 50-50. So I think I think Neil may have just had a bone to pick with me personally because that was very hard on 50 50 is pretty bad. Pretty bad. Yeah. I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> like that's yes. Because hey, the other, are, like, are, probably 45% of the 50 who said no didn't just say weren't going to say no because yep. like, he's going to recognize yep. our handwriting. <laughs> yep. No, so I... Uh, it's got my you name might as well it. have gotten 95. You guys are you guys are making my case for me. Um, <laughs> what so, was the biggest so yeah, complaint? Um, you know, I, I, I totally get where they're coming from, too, is that I would... Um, the, the problem is that sometimes when we as the founders of the companies finally get to a point where we have teams of people working for us, we start to do management by abdication as opposed to management by delegation, right? You start saying, this sucks. I don't want to do it. You go do it. As opposed to this is what is necessary to be done. I'll do this. You do this. Everybody has a little bit of the shitty parts. So, but, you know, we're all going to work on crap together and then eventually we'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get through it. So I think that had a lot to do with it. I um, mean, does that make you an asshole though? 
I see. That's what I'm saying, man. I, I remember talking to my wife about it, and I'm just like, I was. I mean, it's not like boys. there's like two of you there, and it's like, oh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna shovel the shit the whole time. Like, yeah. there's an entire group of people there, yeah. And there's people at the bottom, <laughs> and there's people at the top. Like, at that point, realistically, you shouldn't be down to like at that point. It's like you you should be doing bigger things for the company, making them more money than that. Hey, it's yep. the delivery. You know, and I and I probably didn't do a good job of communicating. You know that. Um, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll second guess all this till I'm blue in the face. But I think that I was just so friggin' tired by the end of it. You know, I feel like I was patience so, has a lot to do with it. Oh, like lack I'm of so patience, impatient. I feel like makes people think that you're an asshole. Where it's like oh, I just I'm, don't have the patience yeah. for it anymore. Oh, and that and that's the thing anymore, right? That's the thing they don't realize. It's like, look, we only have 5K in the bank and I've got a 12,000 payroll draw on Friday because this customer hasn't paid yet because their net 15 apparently to them means net 120. Forgive me for being on edge, but and I want to make sure draw, you have a freaking paycheck. They usually What's draw that? it a Wednesday too. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Whatever pay- um, payroll's Monday it gets drawn Wednesday. So it's yeah, like, you don't so, even have till Friday. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I get, it got to the point where I'm just like, you guys have absolutely no idea what's on my plate. And you have the fucking nerve to come in and critique me. Yeah. You're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is the exact opposite of a mindset that a leader of a company should have. Right. Right. But it's but so hard exactly to separate yourself from that. When you're that involved with the inner working of a company and that much stress is on your shoulders and yeah. all the pressure's on you, it's so hard to step away <laughs> from that and just be like, you know what? You screwed that up three times in a row. <laughs> Try it a fourth time. It's, let's see what happens. Like it's progress at this point. Yep. Like, well, the, yep. the other part of it is, is if you have too much patience, then you eat yourself alive on your way home. Yeah. Because right. you're like, you know what? I let that fucking go again. Because then when you do look at the books later that night or over the weekend, and you're like, that fucker's costing me more money again. <laughs> or so he guess just what? took off. Yo, he just went on a week-long baby. Yeah. He's snowboarding right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and then like, you're, you're I'm dealing doing with more this, shrapnel. sweating it out. It, yeah. it doesn't make the whole animosity any less for the next week that comes down the line. Where you're like, all right, how do I navigate this? And and it's 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 just as bad for us. We don't have as many employees as probably you had, but it's like the subcontractors all in, in you hear people go, well, you know, backcharging for this. It's like, yo, I got him on three other projects. Yeah. So what am I backcharging? You're just going to yeah. charge it across the other three houses I have. So it's like, right. you don't, you're not using one dedicated, you know, framer for this house and you have a different one for each thing. It's like, no, you have these products and you're spread out and, it's not as easy as just being a tough guy and putting the hammer down and going, it's my way or the highway, because guess what? The market's so saturated with work is that they can go somewhere else. They right. don't need you. We need right. them more than anything else. And it's really hard to navigate it without yeah, like, being uh, deep down. I hate you, but I need you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm glad, I'm glad we're all, for a pretty uh... healthy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but no, it's that's every that's day of my life. Was, right. <laughs> and that's, I had a, I talked to the former CEO of one of our big partners and I was just like, 
So what is a COO? Because <laughs> I don't know. I never worked in a the, – the only job I ever had was at the Gap Warehouse in my hometown in Ohio, right? Like I never worked for a proper company. I don't know C-level as opposed to VP and all this stuff. So, so she's like, wait, seriously? I'm like, yeah, I'm very embarrassed to say this, but could you just elaborate <laughs> on what a COO's responsibilities are? And she goes through the whole thing, and I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. That's what I need. I need one of those. And I was like, what do you, uh, what do, what do one of them, uh, what do them COOs make? He's like, oh, 100, 120. Okay, a few years away from that. So I'm going to have to <laughs> tail between my legs, go back and uh, keep, um, keep doing my breathing exercises in my office to not yell at people. But, uh, but no, that, that, that was the decision, right? It's like, okay, I am, you know, one of the big moves I made was when we had a proper production manager, I would be sitting in my office wondering why the sander's not going. I'm trying to do a proposal or come up with a design or come up with our new marketing collateral for our new program or whatever it is. And I'm saying, I've done what they're doing a thousand times. Why is there so much quiet back there when we should be sanding? And then I just start stewing. Yeah, absolutely stewing, right? And then you pick up the phone to text the production manager, be like, so, so what? And then you hear it start. You go, okay, crisis averted. <laughs> but I'm just like, this is not healthy. Yeah, it's not it's crisis like, averted. Like, wait, hold on. Because you've added up those minutes and then the same thing happens tomorrow. Yes. And you're like, okay, by Friday, that's a whole fucking day. Yeah. So yeah. production manager is not off the hook yet because you're still tallying that time. Or it's like I show up to the job and – it's like, all right, you don't, you don't know what to do now. What the heck did you do before I got here? Like, yes, I don't get it. Now that I'm here, you don't like, just do what you were doing. You were more than capable beforehand. Just continue with it. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's an issue with, with all employees where like the structure of my business is when I'm on the job, job, I'm the boss, I take the lead, but like, I don't, I, like that's my own fault that I've created that kind of system within the business. But it's like, no, now that I'm here, you can continue to do what you were doing. <laughs> you don't have to like drop everything and, and give me a hand. Um, like almost pretend like I'm not here. Like pretend like I never showed up. It's so tough. I, I think that uh, it takes a very special someone when you're not business oriented, when you do bring that business up from kind of ground zero and when you have so much stake in it and so much care about the finished product to let that stuff go. Um, it, it builds a ton of resentment. It builds a, you know, you have such a lack of patience, you know, what things should take, how smoothly it should go. And it's super tough to sit back and just let it all play out. So I didn't have a cell phone for a year in the business. And one of the, one of the points, you don't no, no, no. So my, so my phone broke. Right. And we were so busy. And this is when we had like a good team. We had an office manager that would handle most inbound sales. Uh, we had a production manager handling most of the day-to-day -day building. And I was doing outside sales and um, we were putting together the, the marketing collateral for this new program. We were relaunching, releasing and my cell phone broke. And I never had the chance to go out and get it fixed. So, you know, three days go by, five days go by, a week goes by. I sent an email to everybody saying, hey, I don't have cell phones. So just shoot me an email if you need to get a hold of me. And then after a week or so, I was just like, this is kind of nice. 
And then you know, my team would be like, hey, what do, we, what do we need to do here? And it's just like, look, you guys are really good at your jobs. Just make a decision. Like, we'll figure it out. You know, I've made the wrong decision plenty of times. I probably know how to fix your wrong decision. But if not, we got a little money in the bank. We got a good runway ahead of us. Just make a decision. Like, I trust you. And that's why guys, it broke my heart so much when they said that, that you know, they didn't like working with me. Because I'm just like, man, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> like, I just empowered you. I did everything Jeffrey Weiner at LinkedIn talks about. I'm, 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 I'm channeling Simon Sinek here, like empathy and all this shit. And it's just like, maybe this just isn't, isn't my gig. So, so yeah, back to the original question, hired a broker, did evaluation and uh, listed the company and sold. <laughs> but to go from, let me just map this out for a second. To go in that first broker meeting to making or drawing $12,000 a year, fast forward four years you were able to sell the, yeah, sell the company and retire at the age of 38. Yes. Snake, must because, be snake oil. <laughs> because I had, I had six years of data to work off of. So what I you had, did is you took the data, the, the six years of data, and basically <laughs> from the time that you realized your company was worth nothing, you spent the next four years building it to be worth something. Yes. Because you ask, okay, why is my company worth nothing? Because you don't have any profit. Okay, what does profit mean? What, fucking what does profit mean? Surplus uh, money you, after you're done. No, but seriously, not you guys. Business sage that told me my business is worth nothing, right? I'm just like, okay, I don't have any profit. I, I see that as 70K to the bottom line, but I don't feel like I'm making any money. I don't remember that 70,000 just sitting in the bank account one day. Right. You're saying that the company is not worth anything because I'm not paying myself. So, so explain to me what this concept of profit is. And he was like, well, you're either not charging enough or your expenses are too high. I mean, that's kind of all it is, right? If your cogs are all out of whack, costs of goods sold. If your cogs are all out of whack, it doesn't really matter what you're charging. If you're putting, if you have a 5% gross, Good luck after all your internal profit leaks, getting anything reasonable to hit the bottom line at the end of the year, right? right. So it was basically that. And again, it, it's, I don't want this to sound like some alien concept that I decided to do some, some forensics on my business because we all do it as craftsmen with our respective trades, right? Right. It, it's the exact same thing. Why is this joint popping? We need to reevaluate. Why don't I have any money? We need to reevaluate. And there's, you know, a thousand different answers to that question, but there's one right answer. My situation, I wasn't charging enough. I wasn't charging anywhere near enough. And then we finally did an overhead recovery, um, a proper overhead recovery, which I've got a video on my, uh, on my webpage. I started a video blog because I don't want to type all this shit out and I'd much rather just talk as awkward as it is. But it goes through the, the details of a proper overhead recovery rate to where you know exactly what you need to be billing every hour to bare minimum recoup your costs, your hard, you know, overhead. Aid. And we would actually pad that with a 15% margin just in case my numbers were off. So that was the very first thing I did was say, I have absolutely no idea. I know how much I need to pay everything every month, but I have no idea how, if I've got two guys pitching and catching on the planer, 
one guy sitting in a truck going up to the mill and another guy spraying a table that we've sold, where do you even start doing the accounting on that? Right. Mm-hmm. And then I do a bunch of research and YouTube videos and reach out to my you know, neighbor was a roofer. And I said, a real successful roofer. I said, how do you guys do your pricing? And he said, this is, this I was like, well, that has absolutely no uh, applicability to me. So next, you know, and you just kind of have to sift through again. That's why I started this webpage was to, to hopefully I can distill down 10 years worth of these mistakes and lessons. What's his to website? Help Cor- no, my website, CorbinClay.com. Gotcha. Um, yeah. To just, to just hopefully, you know, spread the good word. And, uh, and if this can help even one person out there that made the same mistakes I was making, it'll all be worth it. Um, but yeah, you just, you have to acknowledge when something's not working right, you know, and then, and then, make the decision to change it. And then hopefully you have the right solution to it lined up. That's a hell of a headshot. You look great. Oh, thank you. That was from our engagement photo. Oh, really? You didn't get engaged till after you sold the company, right? I was saying, I put put on a hundred pounds since. So (laughs) no, it's uh, It's like this dude's Um, making 12 grand a year. I'm not marrying him. <laughs> Fast forward four years. All right, maybe I'll consider. <laughs> I tell you, it, my wife and I do talk about that to be like, man, I, I, you know, I wish that, I wish we'd have known each other years ago, so you could see like the stoicism of showing up and doing the hard work every day. Because yeah. you know, when we met, it was easy. I mean, I was bored out of my mind. It's like, well, everything's working. I built this business. I built these systems. It's all working, and I'm bored out of my mind. And I, you know, I told her, it's like, I need you to know that I, I, I put in lots of overnighters. Like, oh, I need yeah, you to sure know. You did. You yeah, like, yeah, I, worked I used week, to be an she's asshole. Like, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> she's like, wait, aren't you the guy that, uh, whose team hates them? <laughs> so what now? So great question. We're building, uh, we're building some uh, cabins in the Colorado mountains that we'll use as vacation rentals. Who's we? Me. Ten, ten, 10 years of saying we uh sure my, my wife and i i guess okay were, that's fair um yeah no so i built this first one um aside from the roof framing the roof sheathing and most of the uh you know plumbing electrical i built it all myself um three bed two bath cabin we made some changes this is a 10 12 with a second story which by yourself is miserable so we made some changes took that upstairs bedroom tacked it onto the side single story ranch five twelve roof is what we just dried in, excuse me, what I just dried in. Well, I got the two bathroom windows to put in, um, but that's ready. Plumber starts on Thursday. So the next nine months or so, we'll be finishing up the second house. And then we'll, I, I have absolutely no interest in ever investing in the stock market. You know, when we sold the business, we put all the money into a money market, but I don't, I don't need to be checking my balance hourly because of GameStop or silver all of a sudden being worth something. Like I'm all set. I, I actually, when we sold the company, I talked with a financial advisor and let's just, let's just say a million dollars for his calculation. He's like, so, say you got a million dollars invested with us. How far does that million have to go down until you pick up the phone to call me? And I said, mm, five grand. And he's like, yeah, stock, stock market is not for you. <laughs> or that you're was a great not, question by or him. Or you're yeah, not that's for great. me. That was a <laughs> yeah. solid question. 
brilliant question and i just started laughing i forget his name now i wish i could remember but anyway i was just like like that was awesome dude and i said yeah I, I didn't want to get into the stock market anyway um but no i'm interested in income not necessarily just asset value so we're trying to build these um these houses that we will then rent in short-term rentals and uh and get some income going that way airbnb we yeah. did that on a podcast a couple weeks ago yeah so that's the next probably nine months. And um, I don't know. I'm just, you know, trying to think of big problems that need solved, right? Uh, I've, I've got a few in the works, but one is a, a tech play. And, you know, finding a CTO um, is a daunting task. And then, you know, writing a six-figure check to a dev company to, you know, to build out the tech stack doesn't really get me too excited either. So, uh who knows? But um, no, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me because I feel, I feel lazy, even though I'm building two houses by myself, I feel lazy and, and apathetic that I only did this much today knowing what I, what I used to do. But, um, you know, I think it's important as we get older uh, to focus a bit more on blood pressure and health and, uh, you know, making sure I don't have a heart attack at 45. Um, so I, I try to, I try to, have that stuff inform my decisions but it never works every day i i, I my head it's the pillow i'm just like man i could have caught that shower you know i could have <laughs> could have flashed that window you know it would have just been 10 more minutes but what are you gonna make do your, i think i think your, we all make have your wife do it nah yeah you gotta fit the bill just be like yeah i'm just trying to be the asshole no nah, that's my princess <laughs> she don't get there <laughs> Oh, you guys have kids? Uh, we don't, no. Um, Who the heck did you uh, wave to uh, when they came in? A dog? Who were you waving to when they walked in earlier? Yeah, it was our little pup. Yeah, her name is Roxy. I was going to say. Definitely it was like, like, it was like a, kid, a yeah. kid type of... I was like, I hope you don't say hi to your wife like that. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. And, and my wife is also 12 inches tall. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell. Uh, the no, camera I, you know, angle I, looks like you're like sitting up on something. Feel like you're like oh, sorry. up top well, I am, of something. I am, yeah, I'm teetering on top of an armoire. Is that weird? No. Uh, is it pine? No. No, it's not <laughs> in a chair. No, uh, I had a I had a pup for uh, 17 years, and she went absolutely everywhere with me. And man, if uh, if you don't have a dog by your side when you're trying to forge your way through these treacherous waters of of running a business, you might want to reevaluate. So she, we said goodbye to her a few years ago. And my wife already had little Roxy when we met and she and I have become pretty good buddies. So that's my little sweetie. That's cool. That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah. John just got a dog. Dogs, man. Yeah, I got a pup. Oh, what kind? Uh, she's a mutt, so we don't know. She got my wife found her friend to rescue at Arkansas Shelter. So it's like the oh. us lab, but she's got like a little bit of pity in her. You can tell by her ears and her <laughs> eyes. But she's cool. she loves to hide under stuff. <laughs> and she's completely content sitting underneath the beds. Okay. You know, when, when we first got her, it was like every time you tell her to sit, she knew how to sit, but it had to be like in a crate, under a chair, under a table, it had to be under something. So she'd <laughs> say sit, and then she'd bolt under a chair and sit. So Rescues are the best, man, because, yeah, you, you say something, and you go, oh, that's what that word means. That's a okay. trigger. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, she's good, though. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Yeah, dogs. Dogs are great. You good, Nick? 
I'm good. Yeah, I lost audio there for a second, but I'm good. Oh. How many technical issues? I, I think I need a new laptop, guys. Or I should just go hey. back to the studio. Hey, treat yourself, man. Seriously. You know what? I'm going to... I don't think we've ever said that hundred thousand bucks and buy a new laptop. Hey, but if I had a fork right now, I'd slam it down and say, "Hey, that is your money. <laughs> you <laughs> earned that." This is not a beetle kill table, though. Yeah. Hey. Well, you know. Well, Corbin, so, this, we all work with what I, we got. We're gonna wrap it up, but I do like how much is left of what they're trying to mill of <laughs> these forests. That's what I'm kind of curious about. Uh, quite a bit. You know, it, it's all about accessibility. So. So we used the, um, you know, the, the easy pickings. Um, and again, to answer John's question. That when you were selling the company, like these idiots. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Hey guys, you're going to be <laughs> fucked. None of it left. <laughs> you just no, can't no, no. get to it. <laughs> no, no, no. So we made it very clear. The beetle kill is probably, um, probably going south as a design trend and as accessibility gets, um, you know, more difficult to answer your question. There's still a, whole bunch left whether or not it's easy for the loggers to get up there and get it i don't know but i had created a um this entire other program was b2b custom conference tables about 12 months before i sold the company knowing that you know we're going to need something else here so i i uh, had talked to two different um office furniture dealerships that we've done a lot of projects with and just basically said Again, a good business starts with a customer, right? It doesn't matter what you want. It matters what your customers want or need. So I said, hey, we can build anything. What is it that would make your guys' lives easier? I don't know if the pricing will work. I don't know if the timelines will work, but, you know, what do you got? And they said, good Lord, custom conference tables. Um, so I said, okay, what specifically are the problems? And we went through that, and then we created a program to address those issues. And uh, of the 14 dealerships here in the front range, all 14 signed up. Um, we'd already done about a half million in sales just in that first year on that program. Um, so you know, we basically took that model and said, if this worked in Denver, there's no reason it shouldn't work in Phoenix, Dallas, you know, wherever. But just now you guys need to take what I built and scale it, which is what I was going to do anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, we didn't leave them uh, totally high and dry. Yeah, that was your plan until you realized that you were an asshole. Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> Tyler, they're going to ask how much money he has left after selling yeah. the company. That's what I thought he was yeah. going to ask. Yeah. $28. Hold on. $26. And no, I blew it all on GameStop, unfortunately. Damn. I went AMC. <laughs> no, I hear you. Guys, this was awesome. Corbin, yeah, I appreciate you being on. And I think it, uh, you know, like I said, we, we chatted through email, but it's cool to to hear your story from furniture maker all the way into building a business and the really about like systems. And like John said, you were so self-aware and able to course correct so many things. Uh, and one of the most impressive to me is the being valued at zero dollars and course correcting that over the course of literally four years to be able to sell a company at a profitable margin to let's just say 6 million. He won't tell us. So we'll just guess. Retire. Yeah. And just throw it out there and he can correct us <laughs> <laughs> for $100 no, um, million. Dollars. $100 million. No, it's uh, I encourage everybody listening and you guys as well. 
really figure out what you're good at and what you suck at. And if you don't have any resources to help you with the things you suck at, fucking find them. Yeah. Have Quickly. some humility. Have some humility. Ask for help. Again, uh, I, I just started this webpage actually because of this podcast. I thought, well, man, hopefully people will hear this and, and say, yeah, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Please help. So CorbinClay.com at the bottom, there's a contact me section. If you guys want to critique like, well, oh, you shouldn't use water base. You should just fuck off. I don't need to hear it. I'm done with, with that. But if you have genuine questions about how to structure your business, how to get over that hump, how to do this and that, absolutely email me. I'd, I'd love to help any way I can. We'll add a, we'll add a link in the description. And it's not, oh, right Clay, on, cool. it's not claycorbin.com because somehow I was like, this doesn't look like it's his webpage. No, it's Corbin Clay. <laughs> Corbin Clay. It's like, I don't see any real good headshots right now. It's just like random pictures of people. <laughs> Tyler, it's completely bad. No, if I'm, if I'm able to help even, even one person out there, you know, navigate the choppy waters even slightly more smoothly and, and gracefully than I did, I'm, I'm all in. That's kind of you. You rock, awesome. dude. Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Take care. Absolutely, guys. Appreciate the interest. We'll stay, we'll stay in touch. <laughs> yeah. We'll be yeah, right on the podcast. It's cool. It, it, it's, I feel like so many people are in that position and kind of give up on it where it's like, you're being valued at $0 and it's like to go back and course correct to look at, like you said, John, like data, having that data. And that's your, your biggest advice to people is like track things. If you don't know what to track, just track everything. And then you figure out later on what, what, what brought value to the next one. And it's, it goes undervalued until it's needed. And thankfully he was in a position where he had it and was able to, you know, create success out of it. I think we're going to, uh, I'm going to be launching my spreadsheet on, uh, MT Copeland. Nice. Really? When we do our class. I was trying to, uh, I was trying to get some numbers for you guys, but he wasn't budging. <laughs> he was well, for those that, well, John, slip it just, in when he wasn't paying attention, <laughs> catch him off guard. John, you, you kind of <laughs> mentioned it, but MT Copeland, if any of you guys are listening and haven't checked it out, a few of us are going to be partnering with MT Copeland. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, but Ken DeCost has launched his cabinet making video. The video. Masterclass. Masterclass, yeah. So if you guys are interested in getting into cabinet making, uh, and there's a handful of other courses on there too, but I'm going to promote, Ellie, uh, was it? promote my boy. Ellie the Apprentice. She yeah. launched hers as well. Yeah. It's uh, it's it, they, really, they did a nice job. Oh, it was, I mean, the production's professional. Yeah. Like, uh, the shop was the shop was littered with cameras. I was jealous. Uh, Doug, uh, Doug, like I, I could tell Doug hung out just to check it out. <laughs> I'm sure he did. And yeah. I'm like, how much is this all? All this guy? Like, is this something we're gonna have? And he's just looking at me like, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know when they're gonna. Yeah, I'm excited. Book, book I'm excited classes. to see see how it it, uh, as you say, shakes out. All right, guys. Well, you know where to find us. We'll see you guys on Instagram. If you have any feedback, make sure you fill out that survey monkey. Uh, and 107 surveys completed to date. That's crazy. If you guys have good feedback, make sure you hit us up on iTunes. Keep us in the top ranking construction podcast. And uh, Any new as, reviews? I didn't check. I could, whoa, hold on. That and I had a note. Like, did we give up on Mike Rowe? 
Are we putting MC Nations to laugh at them? Because the shirts are supposed to come in from. All right. So we have a lead on Micro. Um, the three of us need to put together a letter for him. So that's in our court right now. Like, like, like handwritten, like cursive? Like, does it have no, to be stamped cursive. and delivered by they horse? Get, they got How's rid of work? cursive. Did they? Yes. Yeah, we got a we got a handful. Eight hundred and forty-three reviews. I remember when we used to try and get five hundred. We got a new one, so I thought the podcast was excellent as a first-time listener. It was very informative, and I appreciate the guys were focused more on facts and real-time experiences. As an expanded interior designer in the Southeast, I can relate to all of your comments, and I'm looking forward to listening to some past episodes. Eddie Ryder in North Carolina. Do you think Corbin used trades person because of that other review? I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. Instead of saying like craftsman, you're saying like oh, craft person. We got the one that's it. Well, you know, I thought about that a lot. We got a one star review uh, about weeks back, it being yeah. called craftsman rather than crafts people. And I thought I about that. It's like that, human. But it. But hold on, it's, it's about us. Yeah, that's we're the modern craftsmen. We're it's three also men. Stupid. You can go find something else to argue about. Yeah, we can argue, but like, let's just be real here. The facts are: is three three dudes talking on a podcast having therapy sessions. Yeah, this isn't about like all of the people in the world. I would welcome the, the a modern crafts people or craftswoman podcast, but. It's the three dudes. So, so the easiest thing to do to add like an asterisk or we have to change it to an E. Well, I think of it like human, like everyone's human. And now yeah. we're I mean, I think it's, I, I think like, it's I just, that's how high. I think that's different. <laughs> Is it? Come it's on. Like, you, give it to me. Human. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I think it's a bogus review if, from <laughs> yeah. Linda F bird. So Linda, Linda can uh, take a hike. Yeah. Linda, right, send guys. your info. We'll we'll jump up. We'll get you. Linda, we'll give you a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Send us your email. We'll cross it out and just put craftsman. <laughs> we'll have, we'll make a custom one. Craftsperson. All right, guys. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Duration Molding and Millwork. Considering a painted wood siding on your next project because you love that look, so do we. Let us show you why architects, builders, and homeowners are switching to a Duration for that same great look, but with a much faster install and. So- far superior performance to learn more about Duration Polyash products, please visit their website at durationmillwork.com.